your hosts, Eric Burke and Owen McIntyre. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Morelia Python Radio. We have uh, a birthday today. Uh, I have to say happy birthday to uh, Mr. McIntyre as he joins the old men now officially uh, over the hump. Not officially. <laughs> There's no hump there. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm the even hump number too. again. <laughs> yeah, not. it's not a big hump. It's a, it's a hill maybe. But, yeah, I am officially 30, so thank you very much. But And thank you, everybody, who just papered my Facebook wall and uh, text messages and all that fun stuff today. Uh, Yeah, thank you. And, yes, I'm officially now 30, even though there's probably numerous people that we've spoken to on the – during the whole course of NPR who are listening to this episode and groaning because uh, I'm younger than I'm supposed to be. I don't know. So, (laughs) yeah, so to think you were like 20 – you were in your – uh, mid twenties when we started this show. Like, oh god, that Owen was mm. so filled with hope and youth, and thank God he's dead. So, um, <laughs> uh, thank God NPR killed him. So, yeah. The, but, uh, yeah. Go ahead. I mean, like, but it was uh, fun, and uh, we we had the Hamburg show Saturday, so I kind of got to celebrate with a few other people. Uh, a little early, but yeah, every once in a while, the June Hamburg show actually falls like on my birthday. And those are always the most fun. Cause then it's like, I wander around the show and I'm like, well, it is my birthday. So I do deserve this Python over here. So um, <laughs> it's fun, it's fun, but not so much fun. And I still ended up right. doing that again uh, on Saturday. So it was one of those like, Ooh, California King snakes. Well, it is my birthday. So it's, it, the June show is always the one where I end up buying something at random. Okay. All right. Well, fair enough. Uh, you know, um, it's cool though that, uh, you know, I guess the listeners should be, uh, should, uh, appreciate the fact that you are coming and doing the show, even on your birthday, no fill in guests, <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> no, none of that no stuff, fill in so. hosts, no nothing. Yeah. Well, you know, as you get, it's harder to do shit for your birthday that's in the middle of the week. God damn it, I got yes. work tomorrow. I can't go crazy. So all the festivities and stuff will be this weekend, you know. So today's just a normal day. It's just having to field all the text messages and Facebook posts and, you know, all that other fun. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's what happens when you get old, dude. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. You also I drink, so. No, <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Oh, hell no. I'll kill myself first. So pretty soon you'll be my height. No worries. No, but that was the, that was the best thing ever. That was um, Several people, I mentioned you, like, several times during the show this weekend, and it was always like, well, I have to check with the Hobbit, or, you know, oh, we got to bring my Hobbit, and... Somebody actually like stopped me mid sentence and said, "How tall is Eric?" And I <laughs> stopped laughing. So I eventually said, "I'm like, you know, Danny DeVito." 
they're like, yeah, I'm like shorter. And they're like, really? I'm like, yeah. So That's there funny. could be a few people that are like, going to be like surprised when they actually like meet you for the first time. So they don't have to like look like down have- at you. So, yeah. Yeah, like I had an official, I had a growth spurt of some sort. Exactly. Oh. Nice. Uh, yeah, gotta get it in somewhere. Yeah, it's better to, that they be, uh, you know, overexcited rather than, uh, <laughs> you know, underexcited. Um, rather they be surprised than disappointed. You know, it's yeah. I. Uh, why don't you? Uh, okay, so tonight's show we have Peter Birch joining us. As, uh, yeah, everybody knows. Um, and. It seems like whenever we use our Skype from Australia, no. we have trouble. No. Uh, Damn it. I don't know. Tell right, some highlights, I guess, for... from, uh, yeah, give me, give me, give me some highlights from Hamburg. And right. uh, maybe All get right. on the shirt and stuff. Give me a couple minutes. Right, we should do that more. Um, so what we got is, of course, uh, Hamburg was this weekend. It was a really cool show. And Hamburg has kind of turned into, like, a mini Tinley Park in Pennsylvania, where we're starting to have our own little carpet row going on. Um, they've moved my table. I used to be back with Matt Minatola of Philly Herb. Now I keep setting up next to Jason Balin, uh, who sits up next to Howard Redding. So it is, again, like a little mini carpet row. And apparently, um, the other carpet breeder there, Eric Kohler, uh, will be moving over to our neck of the woods in the August show. So it will actually be Howard Jason, me, Eric. So we'll all be in one little area. So that's good. And I, and I do enjoy being near those guys, and I do enjoy being around all the carpet people because it does kind of help us out. Now, if we can just get Jamie uh, Carnes over from his end, we could all be there. Now, uh, obviously, Hamburg's a really kind of cool show, especially with the Venomous, even though I'll never touch them, uh, Crocodilian, and a few other stuff. But June show, it does get very, very hot in that building. So it was actually a lot less foot traffic, but a lot of people were running in, grabbing what they had to get, and then getting out real quick just because of just how built, how hot that building gets. And, of course, we're all not looking forward to uh, August because that'll be even hotter unless it rains or something. So we'll see how that goes. Hopefully, hopefully it's too bad. But if you are around the area and you wanted to come over, our next show I think is in August. I'm not exactly sure when, but uh, you can definitely go on their websites or just Google search Hamburg Reptile Show, and they'll pull up all the fun stuff. It's a good show, good time, all that kind of fun stuff. The other thing that Eric and I have going on right now is we do have the booster still going on to try to fund a little bit of the trip to Australia. Right now it's looking like, uh, Eric and I will be able to get McDonald's uh, at the airport, maybe, if I let him, if I keep him on the kids' meal, like a little happy meal, um, which should be fine for him. I mean, he's small enough. I mean, that should be good. Um, we, uh, But we really don't care because we were kind of just putting out this awesome shirt and having everybody just get ahead. If they wanted to buy it, buy it. If you don't, no skin off our nose. So if Eric and I only ever do make $20... Welcome to Blog Talk Radio. Please enter your host pin. When finished, press the pound key. The hell are you doing? 
Yeah. I really hope. All right. I'm sorry, but I did not hear you press at least four digits of your PIN number. Kicked me out. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what happened. I'm trying to find. You are so uh, terrible at this. Why do we yeah. always have these problems? I don't know. All right. No, I don't either. Are we making progress, or what's going on? Yeah, I'm sure. Ch- keep talking uh, to myself. All right. Yeah. <sighs> anyway, <laughs> so. If anybody wants to go get those shirts, there are links in uh, on Morelia Python Radio Facebook page. I will repost the links onto Morelia Pick of the Week as well. Go over, get the shirt, twenty bucks. We'll send it to you, and you get this really badass shirt. And it's looking it's looking like it's going to be kind of like a special edition because obviously we won't use the design again. So if you want it, go get it. If you don't want it, that's cool too. So, but again, 100% of the proceeds will go to Eric and myself who are trying to fund a trip to Australia with Nick Mutton, where we're going to meet up with Scott Eper and a few other people and do some really cool herping. Obviously, it's the trip of a lifetime, and obviously, we're going to do it regardless. But we figured maybe if some Morelia Python fans want this really cool shirt, it might help out a little bit. But like I said, we really don't care how much we raise on it. Um, so no pressure at all. That's what we kind of want to reiterate is we're not trying to look out for handouts and we're not trying to get everybody all um, riled up. This is not crucial. Uh, if you have an extra 20 bucks and want a kick-ass shirt, go ahead. Cool. That's awesome. If you'd rather go buy a $20 shirt from Target, have at it. So that's all we got there. Um and then for myself with shirts, I think we're redesigning a few new Rogue Reptiles t-shirts. So I'll let everybody know when those are out. And if you have purchased animals from me in the past, I will hook you up with a shirt uh, just so you can walk around and be a human billboard for me. And that's pretty much all we're going to end up doing. Um, so, yeah, that'll be kind of cool. I kind of figured that would be something people might get behind if they purchased an animal from me. Um Obviously, I can't fit a T-shirt in one of the shipping boxes, so I'll have to just send it out to you a different route. Speaking of which, our babies are up and rolling of a rogue. I have not taken pictures yet because I am lazy and because I've been doing a bunch of other stuff, but I will get on that as soon as I can. Right now, I have some caramel jags, some super caramel jags, one super caramel caramel girl that I'm on the fence about selling and if you want her you should contact me because I might just end up I might just end up keeping her which is why I probably won't put a picture of her out there just because then someone's going to pay me for it and I'm going to have to sell her so there's that as well as I think I have my high contacts will be hatching soon so and I think that's it I don't think we got anything else cooking this year so uh, please don't contact me asking me about rough scale babies. They're not here. So um, hopefully, maybe I'll get a clutch of bread live, but I really doubt it at this point. 
Um, it would probably be a really, really late clutch, and uh, nobody's showing signs of anything right now. So I think we're pretty much done for the year. Of course, I've said that, and now next week I'll end up like with two clutches that I didn't even know were coming because that's always how the world works. So hopefully the season's kind of winding down. I know a lot of us think about it where it's like, uh, let me think. I know a lot of us think it was like June where we should really have babies hatching. We should be moving on to different stuff. But sometimes I looked back at my records and I found out that a lot of animals I've had have not hatched since till like August, July-ish. So we're still in the thick of it. So if you are someone who's on the fence about keeping your animals together or putting your animals together, and they are those spring breeding animals, red lie, inlands, diamonds, a few other animals, give it a shot because you never really know when you're out of the loop with these guys. So like I said, I've had coastals that have hatched in July and August, which means the breeding time was kind of happening right around now. So it's totally okay to check the animals together. So give it a shot. Actually, I think my latest clutch was Welcome sometime to in Skype. September. Sorry, but we don't recognize the telephone number you're calling from. For security reasons, you will need to complete a two-step authentication process. Technical difficulties suck. So I keep getting disconnected. Eric apparently is doing... God knows what with the switchboard. I assume assaulting it with a hammer. So, um, because I just keep getting booted and Eric keeps just kind of going through. Of course, this is again one of those times where we're trying to get a hold of somebody in Australia. Now, Eric did talk to Peter earlier today. So, we thought we had got everything rolling in the right direction. But I guess, once again, uh, Blog Talk is making liars out of all of us. So hopefully everything gets kind of going in the right direction here and we can get this thing moving. So other than that, I am not exactly sure where else to go here. So, yep, either way, we'll get it rolling hopefully very soon. But like I was saying, if you do have, if you are on the fence about certain animals, get them rolling. Chuck them together because we've heard weirder things. And I know of a few people that have had, uh, when the hell, I wanted to say that they had eggs laid in Halloween, on Halloween, and then babies that hatched near Christmas time. So, again, everybody's, Eric and I were talking before the show started about formulas and about how certain people tend to ask us about formulas for keeping or breeding carpet pythons and that there really isn't a formula and there's no formula for any species, let alone just carpet pythons. So if you feel that your animals are close or if you want to give them a shot, chuck them together, see what happens. Um, right now I have, let me think, uh, two, I have two females, carpet pythons, both that potentially, because I saw them lock up with males all season long, uh, potentially could be gravid. They're not showing any other signs. They're not swelling up. They're not doing anything else. They're eating like pigs. But they're one just shed, 
and the other one is deep dark blue right now. So, of course, I'm going to keep track on both of them to see if there are some eggs in the future. Now, I would not be surprised if the clutches are both infertile, just because that's sometimes how that goes. If you're a little bit later, and also if the signs aren't there, if she's not huge, you might be looking at a slug clutch, which is completely normal. Things happen. But obviously, we're pretty late, because if you think about it now, eggs late in June or late June are hatching in late July, early August, being going to try to get the babies ready to roll by end of August, early September. That's when I've run into the most uh, issues with non-feeders or getting babies started difficult because their bodies are like, hey, it's fall now. I should not be eating and kind of cooling down. And you're trying to get them eating. So it is kind of like a little bit of a crapshoot there. Uh, obviously, there are 10 million and one tips of getting babies feeding from live to scenting to all that other fun stuff that we've gone over in various episodes. So, uh, but again, don't just count yourself out just because everybody else has got their eggs and are calling it a day. Um, my IJ actually is over at Jason Balin's house. Uh, the one, you know, obviously that everybody will tell you I can't breed. That's why it's over there, because I can't breed it. It will not breed for me. So Jason took it to breed with his granite. Nothing happened at all. Uh, But I think it was two weeks ago. He sent me pictures of his, one of his male IJs breeding with my female. And this is now, you know, the first, actually I think it was the, the day before Carpet Fest. So we're looking at late May, early June where if anybody tells you IJs go early and they go at, like, the 70s. So the fact that they're even breeding right now tells you that something is completely cockeyed. So don't always count it out. There's no clear-cut seasons for carpet pythons or even pythons in general. Don't worry about it too much. Um, So, yeah. And if you guys have success stories or if you guys have questions, and you are on the Morelia Python radio chat. Go ahead and chuck them into the chat right now. We got some downtime, so why not? If you are, if you want to be in the chat, you can contact myself or Eric. If you contact me, I'm just going to tell you to contact Eric. So you should probably just go straight to him, and we can add you to the chat. I think it may be at capacity. We maybe end up starting a uh, NPR chat group too. Um, <laughs> We'll see how that goes or if there's some way we can expand upon that stuff. So we'll we'll let you guys know when it comes to that. But if you want to get in the chat and if you guys are having success with your breedings, of course, go ahead and post pics on the Morelia Pick of the Week, also Morelia Python Radio Facebook page. And, yeah, basically the whole point of the show is we're here to help you guys be successful. So, of course, We want to hear you guys be successful with your keepings and your breedings and all that fun stuff. And if you have anything extra, you can definitely go to Jason Balin's page, which is Morelia, et cetera. That you can post on anything Morelia. Also, anything else that you guys got kicking around, uh, Collierbrid-wise, Python-wise, Boa-wise. I don't – I think he has ball pythons. It's anything, et cetera. I've, I've put lizards on there. You can go ahead. And also, if you have a really cool Python project, we're not going to kick you off 
the Morelia pick of the week just because it's not a Morelia, uh, obviously. So, but we just ask for kind of close to Morelia or something a little bit around their scope or interest. And also, of course, on the pick of the week, there are no for sale ads of any kind, no bite pictures of any kind, and no feeding pictures of any kind. Those will be deleted immediately. We're not going to hunt you guys down and ask you to alter your post. We're just going to delete it, and you guys will have to deal with it. Um, you guys, There's also, you can have about one warning. We're usually pretty light on the warnings. Um, if you're really a dick about it, we will just ban you from the pick of the week, and we have no problems doing that either. So, yeah, fun stuff. If you're not already on these groups already and you're listening to the sound of my voice, what the hell are you waiting for? Um, go join up on those groups and you can post all the time up there. Questions, comments, concerns. Uh, we ask that everybody be respectful of newbies or asking questions. There's no such thing as a bad question, especially when you're starting out. So we'll check on that. Eric, where are we going? What's happening here? No response, which means he's busy. So hopefully we well, get to be rolling. Um, I'm in the okay. middle. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes. So I'm just, I'm just trying to get just trying to get Peter in here. Um, oh God. Some uh, Skype Skype stuff, but um, for some reason he's not able to call in. I can't figure it out. No. Pretty tech savvy, but yeah, you only go so far. Crud. Um, <laughs> hold on. Good. Okie dokie. So hopefully we'll get this rolling in the right direction. So it will be one of those things where we can try to get this thing rolling. And however many times we do talk to somebody in Australia, there's always something that goes on, a little high wire. So what we're trying to do is get Peter to use his Skype account or our the Morelia Python radio Skype account, because we have one, to call in and get us in there because sometimes we do lose phone calls from Australia a lot. I mean, it is a, it's a pretty far away place from Pennsylvania. So obviously it's a little bit difficult, but Trying to get it in, this is just one of those things that's a little bit of a quirk of the show. Uh, hopefully, we can get this rolling in the right direction. If not, I know we can always reschedule with Peter. Uh, Eric and I can always do whatever it is we do when these things happen. <laughs> we really have a contingency at this point. So, <laughs> um, we'll figure that out. But... Obviously, the next thing to talk about is I have no freaking idea. (laughs) Uh, All right. We'll just do it this way. I want to talk about my white lips because I like my white lips, and I have no one here stopping me from talking about my white lips. So let's talk white lips. White lips are fantastic animals that I think everybody should own if you are a psychopath like myself and enjoy animals that will never, ever, 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 ever love you. So, there are obviously the, the two phases, black and the gold. I'm partial to the black, but I think everybody else on the sun is partial to gold, which is weird. 
because, like I said, I like the black ones. But I think that they're one of those animals that are very misrepresented, especially because everybody has the same qualms we always used to have about carpet pythons and green trees and everything that. And that's the stigma that came with them when they were brought over as wild-caught animals as being aggressive, flighty, bitey, shitty, mean animals. Um, I have three captive born and breds and two wild-caughts. And my two captive born and bred girls are babies. I, I had people holding them at Carpet Fest. I had Nick Mutton talking about how this is a very good representation of a captive uh, white lip just is by its attitude. So I think they're one of those animals that if I think if you could get the opportunity to purchase them, you should. Uh, and if you want to challenge, especially if you can purchase some captive born and breds. Now that's not getting a captive born and bred from the guy who mysteriously has all this stuff that's on the dealer's lists a week or two after the lists are released, but swears to God, everything on his table is captive born and bred. I hate to break it to you guys, but that guy is lying. So um, that's just how that goes. If you're going to get a interesting and rare animal like a white lip that you want it to be captive born or bred, you're going to spend that kind of money. You better be getting it from somebody who can show you pictures of the parents, picture of mom sitting on the eggs, picture of the baby coming out of the egg, has seen that thing from birth, has probably seen the parents from birth. Uh, that's what I would go for. Um, and there are just one of those cool little animals, and they, like I said, they are a little bit more flighty. The way I get around that is I give them bio, bioactive substrate, so I don't have to be in their cage all the freaking time. I, of course, give that also to my Dominican red mountain boas, but for a completely different and way more disgusting reason, is that they are shit machines, and they just constantly are grossing out their entire cage just I mean like smearing it on the walls so by giving them mulch uh, and bioactive substrate it kind of gives it a little bit of a cleaner feel I don't have to go in there all the time and swap out a bunch of paper that they just totally painted on I have to scoop out one section and then replace it same thing goes with the white lips it's kind of like really easy to get in there and clean them and it kind of calms them down a little bit. My one wild-caught uh, male was really flighty and really psychotic until I moved him on the mulch. And now he builds a little burrow, stays in it, doesn't really do too much, and it kind of calms him down. So if you have uh, white lips, obviously you know what I'm talking about. But if you have any kind of other python, potentially be kind of flighty and nasty, maybe you want to try to do something where you don't have to be in their cage all the time. Now, and I've, I've said this to tons of people, because they always ask me if this animal is nice and this animal is nice. Uh, my usual response to them is I don't need them to be nice. Um, those of you who've been over my house know that my water python is a psychopath. She's a crazy bitch. I have to cover her cage or she will literally bash her head trying to get at me through her tub. So, yeah, just totally cover it this way she can't see me. And that's just something you do. She can't see me. She's a little bit more relaxed. She's not hitting her face. She's calmed down a little bit. So it is the best thing to do. So if you have an animal that is maybe a little bit more high-strung, a little bit more stressed out, a little bit more aggressive, 
try doing something like that because it's worked for me, especially with an animal like a white lip. So it, it could be something to, to do. I'm seriously considering it to do it with my Timor Python. Um, and that would be pretty much it. I mean, everybody else is not real messy and, uh, not really flighty or really aggressive. Uh, Except maybe if you count the collier brids, but there's nothing you can do about that. That's just the collier brid. So I would do that. But since I mentioned my Timor pythons, let's talk about them. I like them too. So <laughs> fortunately for everybody, I'm just going to keep talking until Eric stops me. But he's not here, so you're all stuck with me. So the Timor pythons are something that I'm still fairly getting used to. Uh, the animal that I have is by no means what was described to me as the species norm, especially by uh, the person I got it from. She is nervous, but she's not aggressive. She's a little flighty, but is easily kind of directed. So I can pick her up and then kind of point her at an open cage, and she'll slide right in it. And as long as I don't touch her tail... There's no shitting, there's no hissing, there's no biting, there's no freaking out. Um, and that's sometimes what you got to do. A lot of people tend to not understand that sometimes with high-stressed animals, the best thing to do is take a step back and not, you know, don't tame them down. That's what you keep hearing from a lot of people uh, is that I'm trying to tame this and I'm trying to make this sociable and no one cares if it's sociable, or you shouldn't care. If your main purpose is breeding, um, it doesn't really matter. Now, I understand that a more sociable animal is easier to handle, clean, care for, breed, but do all that and try not to stress them out too much by just taking a step back a few feet and not really, you know, I don't grab her by the back of the head and hook her out and slam her into a holding bin you just scoop I scoop her up sometimes with her house and all and uh put her into another holding bin cleaner cage and then she goes right back in uh and I've actually readjusted my hide boxes uh we had in the show a little bit ago I forget who the guest was because we have so many and I'm a scatterbrain um but they said that the as long as the security of the hide box is not disturbed an animal will continue to use the hide box or nest box. So all my hide boxes used to be like what everybody else had. It was a plastic thing that I cut a semicircle in for the snake to go in and out. And this way I could lift it up and the snake would just be underneath it. Um, what I've done now is replaced most of them with bins. It looks big like tough we bins. finally you got oh, it. No, finally, yes. We finally got Peter on the line. Good Lord. Thank God I can. <laughs> It's it's enthralling to be here. (laughs) It's enthralling to get this. Thanks for covering, guys. Thanks for covering. That's what we do. (laughs) Again, no one wants to hear me talk. So (laughs) we we may be in the future chronologically, but um, we're slightly behind the times when it comes to everything else down here. So true. Whatever works. Whatever works. That's it. Whatever works. Whatever gets us there, right? Exactly. Right. I don't care how 
how this happened. Heck yeah. It, somebody might have been struck by lightning. We're just going to keep using it. It's fine. So That's um, right. As long as it keeps working. Yeah, as long as it keeps working, I don't care what happened. So <laughs> yeah, you're you're no you're no stranger to blog talk. You know, you know how it goes. <laughs> I know the difficulty oh. here. It was quite reminiscent actually going through the jumping through the hoops just then. I'm just like, oh my goodness, that's right. That's how bad it was. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. All right. So let's anyway. Go. First, before we yeah, before we get into it, I want to know what it's like to wake up every day and maybe find a diamond python in your shed. I mean, how cool is that? What is that like? It's uh, it's probably one of the greatest feelings. That's probably the reason why I don't keep them in cages anymore, to be honest. I mean, I've, I've kept diamond pythons for a very long time, and we've been living where we are now for 15 years, and we're very gifted, I guess, to be uh, in the most southern tip of the rainforest that sort of stretches all the way up the, um, the east coast, all the way up to sort of Cairns and up further. We're sort of at the most southern point, which is sort of halfway between Newcastle and Sydney. Um, diamond okay. pythons do go further than further south than Sydney, but um, you know, right. the rainforest sort of really has a lot of different interesting animals. And this this morning it was eight degrees Celsius. Um, so usually on a cold night, early morning, the sun comes up. That's usually when you start to find a couple of diamonds out basking first thing in the morning. Try and get that body temperature back up. Wow, cool! That's so. It is, it is. It is very cool, actually. It's, it's really cool. I mean, uh, Tommy Crutchfield came and he's been keeping uh, diamond pythons outdoors for four years, and breeding them successfully down in in Florida there. And he came here and he's like, "Wow, you know, just seeing their environment." And we actually found one while he was here, but just seeing the environment that they do actually live in sort of opened his eyes and the way he keeps them and. He just said, you know what, I've probably been keeping them too warm. I can actually, you know, put them in a colder part of the yard and um, put them in another enclosure outdoors and they would still be able to respond. So, that's yeah, awesome. that's one of the reasons why uh, Owen and I want to uh, make the trip so bad this year to Australia is because to actually be in the environment, I think, is uh, something that... You know, it's really a good learning experience. When oh, definitely, them. definitely, definitely. I mean, long before the uh, gods allowed us to keep animals on uh, reptiles, I should say, on permits because we have a permit system for everything because it just makes sense. Not really, but um, <laughs> in, in the authorities' eyes, it makes sense. You know, charge you money to keep an animal that really they have no understanding themselves of. But before the permit system came around, the only way we were able to get animals was you would have to learn more about the animals, where they were, the environments they lived in, and sort of learn more about what they're doing out there to be able to locate the animals so then you could bring them home and put them in, in a cage, basically. Right. And call, them, and call them a pet. You know, that was like 25 to 30 years ago that that sort of behaviour was happening. And And I guess a lot of that's was very useful because a lot of people were learning more about the animals prior to even getting the animals. Whereas now we're very much like you guys, you know, we, we have a, a license system that really requires the only ability to be able to pay money and write your name <laughs> on a piece of paper. Um, and, 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 and people can basically get their hands on just about anything, um, you know, 
for the good or the bad of the animals. And it's sort of a little bit scary that a lot of people are buying animals and, you know, after they've bought the animals, they say, oh, what sort of enclosure do I need? What temperatures do I need to keep them at? And, oh, I'm not really sure, but what is it eating? Uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit, little bit scary. A little bit scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A little bit of a backwards thing. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, so, Peter, we always so to wrap it all up, ask, to live in the environment where diamond pythons live, it is magnificent. You just never know what, when you're going to see one or where they're going to be or what they're doing. And, and you know, you, you could pick them up and their body temperature will be right, right down there, you know, very low, like in the single digits. That's I, awesome. I guess most of the diamond pythons around my house really don't really approve of me sticking a thermometer up there in a low acre, but, I mean, I need to know these things. they're going to start avoiding your house dude like they're going to be like you have to start going further and further out to find them just because they're not going to want to be near you because that's the guy who shoves stuff up like so they're going to be like further gone it's only a slight molestation but you know yeah they're fine it's for the good of science come on (laughs) right but Peter why don't you tell us like what got you into reptiles? I know living in Australia has got to be like really easy to get into reptiles out there, but what, what got you into it? Um, I, I, I don't know if it's a getting into it, you know, like a, a new hobby or, or as such. All I can remember is some of my earliest memories um, and, you know, interactions with animals. And then I remember a time when I was, must have been like in preschool, so I don't even know how old I was back then. But I remember going to a sand pit, um, you know, usually a, a death trap or a, a giant kitty litter box these days. But um, <laughs> I remember going, getting into a sand pit and I found a blue tongue and I, I picked the blue tongue up. And I, I don't remember how old I was, but I do remember holding the animal. And then I remember someone screaming, saying the animal is dangerous, it's deadly, and all this. And all I was doing was I was just fascinated that it felt different and you know it was poking its tongue out and and from there I guess it just turned into um, the thirst for knowledge you know like it was just more insects and creepy crawlies and the more people disliked something the more I wanted to know why they disliked it and it just grew on from there and I mean some of my other memories is being eight years old on my grandfather's farm out in central New South Wales, uh, catching anything that moved. It was mostly lizards, uh, blue tongues, bearded dragons, and uh, shingleback lizards and a few geckos. And this one day I I remember seeing something shoot down a hole and I thought, oh, geez, I better grab that. And I grabbed it. And as I extracted it from the hole, um, to my surprise, this thing didn't have legs. I thought it was a lizard, but it was actually a a three-foot red-bellied black snake. Oh my God! And, uh, <laughs> so, so he, he's me and my brother, and there's two years between us. My younger brother, he was six at the time, and I was eight. And here I am catching this red belly, and I was just fascinated that you know it didn't have legs, and the way it moved, and you know there was no great handling skills. It was just grab this thing, pull it out, and look at it, and got shocked, and sort of let it go, and watch it slither back down the hole. And then it, it, I think that just sort of wanted me to learn more about the animals. That's awesome. Um, and, I, and I guess because because we do have so many venomous snakes in Australia, you know, most people's um, 
first interaction with snakes in Australia probably would be with a venomous snake of some degree. Jesus. <laughs> that, that's, yeah. It's a little daunting, but... Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it can be. So, it can be just a little bit. You know, it's a, it's just a red belly black snake. It's fine. So, um, <laughs> so but... We, we we heard that in one of your interviews that you collected animals for research. Can you yeah, tell us yeah, about I, some of your experiences with that? Yeah, I um I, I got an opportunity about yeah it was about twenty years ago to 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 work with the university as a as a field technician. That, mm-hmm. that was the role, field technician. But in all reality, I was the guy to search out reptiles, capture them. Um, make them available to students doing their master's degree or their PhD or whatever it was. Um, and they were international students, so a lot of these students had never seen um, the animals they were looking for. They had no idea what the animal was, where it would be found, um, how to handle that particular animal, let alone trap them in larger numbers so they can collect data and and then... Stuff like that. I mean, some of the some of the studies I worked on was uh, uh, some of the studies was uh, population density of um, the eastern long-necked tortoise, the Chelidina. Okay. Um, yeah. So that that was one of them, and I mean, we were putting. Um, so basically, it was no free-flowing water. It was just um, basically like a water hole. We call them dams. Um, just pastoral area, so there'd be cow cattle or cows on the block and sheep and that and then you just go out and throw some traps in a dam and I would I would rock up the next day at 6.30 in the morning pulling the traps out of the dams full of turtles waiting for the student to come in and I'd be collecting all the data until they turn okay. up at you know, 9.30 and then um, you know you spend all day marking the animals measuring them, weighing them and then releasing them and then over a period of time you can start to see the the population density within you know like a five acre or a ten acre area within these small isolated dams and then sometimes you can actually see where the animals had moved from one particular dam to another across the terrain and they'd made it safely so it it sort of started to open your eyes I guess as as a reptile keeper it sort of opens your eyes that you know we talk about cage sizing and all the rest of it but you know when they're free free-roaming animals, they do incorporate a lot of the area that they work, walk with between. Um, some of the awesome. other studies was um, some of uh, the smaller skink species, Cryptobrophilus, um, some Lamprophilus, the two Lamprophilus, Delicata and um, Kitsumabe. And there again, they were population <laughs> density, but um, my job there was to dig holes. Apparently, <laughs> I'm really good at digging holes, so... <laughs> Okay. In in an area, you're digging a hole every, uh, I think it's about every three to four feet. You're digging a, a small uh, four-inch hole in diameter and probably about six mm-hmm. inches deep. So you're doing pitfall traps, okay. and you're doing that in a you know in a like a grid system. So basically, you, you they they pick an area, and lucky me goes in and digs the whole area out and puts all these traps in. And then my job every day was to search the traps and collect animals and. Once the animals are collected, then the students would come out and do all the hard stuff, you know, all the, <laughs> all the really hard stuff. The hard I've stuff? done all the easy stuff. Yeah, I was doing the easy I, I, stuff. I, I, oh, you, the you were saying, like, 
you're getting up at like six and going herping. I mean, and then they're yeah, coming yeah. around at like what nine and yeah, getting data <laughs> on animals you collected. I don't know. I don't know. I think you may have had the shorter end of the stick in some ways, but yeah, you were getting paid to herp. So that's yeah. probably a good one too. Oh hell yeah! I mean, some of the other stuff we did. Um, there was a couple other times I had opportunities to travel to basically go herping. So there again, I'm getting paid to go somewhere else to herp, to catch different species of skinks. Um, we also did uh, the, 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 the guys that were involved did another study on um, the southern rainforest dragons, the Hypsilurus spinites. Um, uh-huh. That's a species. The species I used to keep in captivity, but there again, they they do exist in my backyard, so I don't no longer keep them in captivity. And you just start to learn more and more about these species. You know, the more involved you get, and aligning yourself with, you know, the academics and how they look at things differently to to normal people. That's the only way I can describe most academics. They they see life obviously in a very different way. But, um, yeah, there's so many different studies. Um, there was another one that we did on uh, blue tongues. Um, so we're doing some radio telemetry work with those, um, tracking them, seeing where they go. Um, the, the transmitters were heat sensitive, so depending on the number of beats per minute, it, you could actually predetermine the body temperature of the animals. Wow. So you wouldn't be... Um, wow. Yeah, you're not molesting the animals any more than you need to be because obviously every time you interact with the animals, you're changing their natural behavior. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, some of the earlier stuff we were doing was uh, cotton spooling of rainforest dragons. So these guys are moving vertically up trees. They'll go up the tree probably uh, 30 to 40 feet, and then they jump across into the canopy of another tree and jump across into another tree, and then they'll come down, go across the ground probably five feet, and then up another tree across a vine. And my job was huh. to follow follow the cotton spool, basically, and measure it all and then find the animal and then allow the academics to do what they needed to do and then you know we would leave the area and come back into the area in a couple of weeks and then my initial job for a few days was to try and find the animals the initial animals for study mark them and then we could um re-find them again prior to the academics doing their work wow Wow. That sounds so awesome. It was, it was quite interesting and awesome. It, it just, yeah, I, I loved it. I really loved it. That's so cool. So, out of all the animals that you've had interactions with, what led you to focus on Antheresia? That's a good question. I'm not really sure. Um, it, was, it was probably around about 1994. Um, mm hmm that I really, you know, looked at a few books, a couple of field guides, probably even Cogger's book and seen the um, the Maculosa and the Children Eye and the Stimson Eye. And I guess the Stimson Eye grabs your eye very quickly because of the colour and mm-hmm. the, the broad markings. And, and initially, you know, I was quite interested in them, but the opportunity to get your hands on them and travel to get them wasn't really there. Um, okay. There again, this was prior to licensing and prior to... Um, legal captive collections of reptiles in New South Wales so that sort of made it very difficult as well and back then you're relying heavily on the word of mouth and friends of friends and sort of almost an underground of contacts 
to be able to get your hands on certain things. But um, it, it did happen, and when it happened, I, I got some animals, and in 96, I bred them for the first time, and I, I just thought they were a great, great little snake, just a pleasure to work with, just a small, robust, 95% of the time docile, but, you know, they can be <laughs> very uh, food-orientated at the best of times. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, I, I just... Yeah, I just found them really easy to work with, you know. You, you could do a lot of different things with those guys and they, they could tolerate it more than some of the biggest things. That's very cool. So, uh, can you tell us about Spot? Spot? My mate Spot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was one of the first animals um, I got back in 94. Um, okay. Spot, Spot's... Uh, He's he's just my best friend, you know. He's the first guy, and he's he's the one that sort of led me to where I am now. I don't know if that's good or bad, but it has led to me to 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 fall in love with these animals, you know. Um, his girlfriend I got in 1996. Um, even up until last year, and and this year she's ready to go again. But last year she laid a nice clutch of 12 eggs and. I, I uh, allow her to maternally incubate her eggs. Mm -hmm. And I, I just find that's really amazing to allow these animals to do what's natural. And as they say, mother knows best. And you just sit back and watch what they do. And even though they're trapped in a small enclosure, I guess, in the larger scheme of things, they, they still manage to know exactly what they need to do to get those eggs to hatch. Right. That's awesome. So, but... But Spot's my best friend. I mean, I did um, uh, mobile education for 15 years. I go around to mm -hmm. kids' birthday parties and preschools and all the rest of it. And and Spot was a major part of that. So him and I formed a really good bond. Um, you know, in between shows, he'd be hanging around my neck while I'm driving through the traffic and whatever. And, <laughs> and all the kids would love him because, you know, it's Spot. Yeah, it's Spot. I love Spot. Yeah. And, and Spot, you know, he's, he's an old fella and... You know, he never, never once looks sideways at biting or nipping anyone, and it's he's just, yeah. And little kids don't do this, don't do that, and the first thing they do is exactly what you told them not to do: squeeze him, <laughs> try and pull him apart, <clears throat> all the rest of it. Yeah. But yeah, poke him on the head, you know, touch the sharp part. Don't worry about the other one. Yep. But yeah, it's just, um, yeah, no, he's he's a great animal, and I love him, and he's just a normal spotted python. Um, to most people, but to me, you know, he's a family member and he, he won't be going anywhere. Awesome. He's here, he's here forever. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Uh, do you have a favorite species of Antaresia from, from the, from the, from the genus? Um, yeah, a good question. I, I really think this probably the spotted pythons are probably, um, I think I like them a little bit more than the others. It's hard to say. I mean, I, I find they're all slightly different. Um, you know, you open a box with a children's python in it, 99% of the time you're going to get bit. You open a box with a Simpsons python in it, and it's a, it's a, it's almost a 50-50 gamble. Um, per census, okay. I, I really, the per census, you know, you've probably got a 30% chance of getting nipped. Whereas the, the the spotted pythons, 
you know, most of the time they don't want to. But then again, I've got some awesome animals that as soon as you touch that box and as soon as it cracks the lip, they'll do a 360 bite over the top of the box or underneath the box to get your hand. So, right. uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I like the spotted. I just think it, um, it's the, the patterning that really captures me, the way the patterns can be so completely different. Right. So I, I really, I really think right. they're, they're probably one of my favourite ones, yeah. Well, they're probably the, the most favourite of my favourite ones. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, having a favourite kid, right? Sure, I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you're going to love them more equally, but yeah. Right. <laughs> have you found each of the species in the wild? Have, have you? Uh, Stimson eye, yes. Children eye, yes. Maculosa, yes but not Pertensis. Um I've been in the area a few times for the, the, the pygmy bandits, um, but haven't found okay. one as such. But um, definitely the, yeah, once you see where the animals come from, it, like I say, you know, it does sort of help you understand a bit more about the animals themselves and maybe their requirements in captivity a bit more. What was the one thing that you learned that you took back you know, uh, that you applied to how you kept them? Um, probably that they need, um, I guess some people get a little bit lazy when it comes to water, offering water to animals. Um, okay. And, and you know, like, ah, uh, I just fill the water bowl up and, you know, when it dries out, I'll fill it back up or if it, you know, defecates in the water bowl, then I'll change it. I, I just found that when you find these animals in the wild, you know, if times are tough and there's no water around, then they definitely um, definitely look worse for the wear than um, if there's abundance of water. And same in captivity. They need to have a, a large quantity of uh, water available so that they still always look nice and healthy and robust. Yeah, it's... It's funny, you hear a lot of people talk about humidity, but you don't hear a lot of people talk about hydration. They focus more on humidity, where I think more of the focus should be on hydration. Yes, definitely. I mean, humidity is... I I look at humidity as a killer. I I don't like humidity. I don't like to see moisture in boxes and all the rest of it. I like to see water bowls. I don't like to see condensation on the box or anything like that. Yes. Exactly. What about um, in, in your book that you, you guys talked about uh, this uh, new species that you guys referred to as the pygmy banded python? Is there any, oh, has yeah. there been any more research done on this since the book came out? Yes, yes, there has. Um, there's a lot of stuff that's happening, but with true credible. credible uh, Taxonomy, taxonomical work, um, it takes time. And, you know, it's, it's very, thank you, um, it's very involved, as, as you guys would know. I mean, and I mean, having, you know, obviously some really good friends in the hobby in Australia and as well a, abroad, it, it's difficult to make sure that you're doing something that's going to hold up obviously, to um, everyone else, everyone else sort of criticising and 
you know, the, the claim that there's a new species and all the rest of it. But basically, um, where we're up to is we've um, put a paper together, um, sent it off to Zootaxa. Uh, Zootax has acknowledged it, sent it back with some revising, but also um, asking for some genetics work. So we're up to drawing blood for genetics to actually see um, if it's genetically completely different to uh, everything else that's ever existed. So, but scale count wise, it, there's there's huge leaps and bounds there. So that's awesome. So if it does happen, cool. it would might be the new exciting thing in Australia that's happened in the last <laughs> sixty years. But um, there again, you know, it has to. You know, other people have done work that make it very difficult for, you know, other people to try and do the right thing as well. Those people should remain yeah. nameless, but we all know who yeah, you're talking think, about. But, yeah, it's, always, it's always better to remain uh, <laughs> nameless. <laughs> you don't need to name names. Okay, the name. It's like Beetlejuice. <laughs> yeah, don't say his name. <laughs> yeah, you don't, don't do that. It'll pop up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We don't want to deal with that. But um, no. you're exactly correct. That is so cool to have a brand new species. That would be really cool. Um, yeah, and, and um, it, it is. I mean, we've, we've um, when we initially put the paper together, that's me and a friend. Um, him and I both have been working with the animal for oh, over 20 years, looking at it and all the rest of it. And, you know, it's it's only been in the last probably, well, it was a couple of years before the book anyway that we were sort of discussed that there's something in this. Um, you know, we should do something about it. And we kept working with the animals and breeding them in captivity. And every time you breed them, you just go, you know, they're just completely different. They look different. They look like little zebras. You know, some of them have that silvery blue eyes. And it's just, it, they look like they've slithered into a wall and they've got a short, blunt sort of snout as well. <laughs> so really? there, there's a few little things just by, you know, as a, as a keeper looking at them, they're different. But then when you actually mm -hmm. sit down and you go, okay, let's, let's, let's have a good look at this, you know, and take into account that at some times scale counts can vary, but let's look at a, a large, a decent collection of these animals and see what we can come up with. And um, we've had uh, a couple of people in the field collecting skins for us as well as um, wild animals so that we can start doing the genetics work. Um, rather than rely on captive populations that may have been diluted in to some effect by, um, you know, just breeding. Right. So, but, um, you know, we've had the likes of uh, Hal Cogger uh, look at the paper, um, Glenn Shea, another taxonomist from Australia. Um, you know, and we've had a lot of people within the field look over it and all say the same thing, you know, you need to go, you need to keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing. So it just, it takes time. <laughs> yeah. That would be so cool though. But, um, Peter, the last time I think you and I, I think I saw you one of the Tinley shows. I don't think it was the last one. I think it was the one previous, but yeah, it would have been. Yeah. Yeah. You, you and I were talking a lot about enclosure sizes because you were, spewing out a lot of this stuff that had me completely like <laughs> confounded with like the caging requirements that you guys are bound by 
when it comes to your animals. Um, can you kind of go into that? I know you've said, I, I forget the exact dimensions you said about your antheresia cages and how you kind of got around it a little bit, but can you kind of talk about some of your enclosures and how big they have to be and what you've done to kind of work around that problem or embrace yep. that? Yep. So basically um, uh, a V35, uh, the vision tubs, the V35s uh, complies currently with New South Wales standard of keeping one adult anteresia which is which okay. is decent and it's it's fair enough and you know that right. doesn't really affect most people that keep these these, these particular pythons um the v70s uh they're a much bigger tub obviously so basically if you wanted to put uh you're keeping one animal in a v35 and you want to breed that with another particular anteresia, then all of a sudden that V35 tub no longer complies. You now have to increase the floor space by 50% for a second animal. So now you're looking Jeez. at a V70 to cows, a pair of adult anteresia. There again, not really a big issue. Mm-hmm. But if you took that, if you took that to the um, to a carpet python then the python tub, the vision python tub, does not comply with okay. a carpet python, with a single carpet python. So, so Eric you know, would you're be looking screwed. At a, oh, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a, lot, a lot of Aussies get screwed too, trust me. Yeah, Eric would be but, um, yeah. It, it, and, and what they did is they... See, the, the authorities in New South Wales, and this is my biggest qualm and a lot of real reptile keepers qualm is you know all of a sudden they're they're bringing into the the ability for a a so-called inspector to come to Mm -hmm. your house facility or whatever it may be with a tape measure measure your your enclosure dimensions then say okay it's a children's python it's in an enclosure xyz um or according to the standard your enclosure is too small, therefore your animal is, you know, not being looked after or cared for appropriately. They actually do have the power to issue a fine on the spot and make Jeez. you rectify it, and they'll come back and reinspect it. But saying that, no one has ever been inspected, and no one has been issued fines. So what it really does, and it really gives them the ability to now to try and restrict the number of animals that someone has. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you've got a, a python rack, a vision python rack, and all of a sudden the authorities come in and say, okay, then, you know, you need something twice as big for each animal inside that tub. Therefore, you're now using twice as much area for half the amount of animals. It's sort of reducing your collection size. And then uh, the other thing geez. they do in different states is, you know, they restrict the number of venomous reptiles or venomous snakes you can have in your collection. So there again, you know, they, they, they're constantly doing these different things in different states. It, and, I mean, at some point, all these states are going to get together and they're not going to take all the good things that each state's doing. They're going to take all the bad things and come back and go, you know what? Reptile keeping is getting out of control 
even though we've got it licensed and you know they govern it quite heavily they're going to go it's quite popular it's not really the in thing for most people so therefore let's try and restrict the keeping of native animals and I think that's really Australia's biggest problem is you know keeping native animals is an issue, seems to be an issue you right. can keep a cat or a dog or a rabbit or any of those typical companion animals completely unrestricted. Right. You could buy, I mean, I could go out tomorrow and buy a um, um, any of these non-Indigenous birds, you know, like a, an African grey and keep it. And then it could escape out of my enclosure and fly freely. But mm. that right. doesn't seem to be a, a big problem compared to if I have a diamond python and it escapes. That seems to be a bigger issue. Even though that, you know, if, if you're not within the home, within its typical home range with a reptile, the first winter or summer that comes along would definitely take its toll on that particular animal. Right. I, I, I understand the fact that, you know, we shouldn't keep non-Indigenous stuff like exotics for us, but that's, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy with that. A lot of Aussies right. probably wouldn't be, but I am. So. <laughs> But yeah, the, the cage sizing thing is just completely ludicrous. Um, you know, they, they come in and say, uh, like a Chinese container, which is probably about three inches wide by four inches mm-hmm. deep by two inches high, is sufficient for a hatchling. Um, hatchling python, then what they do is they go, okay, a hatchling python can be up to, you know, eight to 12 weeks of age, so a three-month-old hatchling in that enclosure is acceptable. Oh, geez. But then they turn around and say, you know, you need to then increase the size of the enclosure compared to the animal. It's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm not a mathematical whiz kid. I'm a guy who loves animals. <laughs> <laughs> well, And, you know, the, the paperwork we have too is just ludicrous, you know. So can... An inspector gauge the uh, whether an animal, like, what if you have, like, a baby that just is powering through food and he's not older than his siblings, but he's just bigger? Could that potentially be something that they would flag in as an animal that is too big for an enclosure? Well, then then if you wanted to be a a bit of a smarty pants, you just turn around and say, well, this is the age of the animal. It still falls within their, within their guidelines, but, yeah, you don't want to poke the no, tiger. No, you don't really want to do that. <laughs> no, I could, I could understand so, so that. Most, yeah. most of the time, you're just sort of very compliant. And I mean, if you're doing the right thing, you've got nothing yeah. to worry about. If you're doing the wrong thing, it's only a matter of time until they catch you. Um, right. You know, it's very rarely that people get caught, but when they do get caught, they're doing the wrong thing, you know, and it's quite well advertised everywhere. So uh, with your larger animals. Yeah, I mean, like things like um, olive pythons is probably a good example and and scrub pythons. Um, Well, olive pythons, um, I keep my olive pythons in in an enclosure that it's um, eight foot long. It's 1,200 wide, which is uh, three, I think it's three feet wide by three feet high. And that's one animal. Wow. That, that, that falls within the guidelines for a scrub python, which is probably the longest one out of, the rest, out of all of them. 
Um, I keep right. my blackheads and my olives in those enclosures. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah, so they're, they're quite big, right? Yeah, they're, they're quite big enclosures, but I mean, you know, it's as far as I'm concerned, they're big-bodied animals. You know, they don't, they do like to cram up, but you have a hide box or some situation where they can get in there, and you know, they're quite tactile, like nose pythons. They like to touch stuff, so give them an area where they can squish themselves in, but also give them the ability where they can stretch out and allow their lungs to stretch out. I, I just think that's something personal. I just feel they need to do. Okay. Need to be able to stretch out occasionally. We all do. A little bit. You know, yeah, every once in a while. No, it's like when you uh, fly from Australia to the US, the first thing you want to do when you get off the plane is you know, have a good stretch out. <laughs> well, hopefully we <laughs> yeah. will. At some point, we will experience that. But um, yeah. with all the different types of anteresia, um, can you go into kind of like their caging differences from babies all the way through adults of all the different types? Because they do vary in size just between the Yeah, they do vary in size. I, I, I don't really change too much between them all. Um, I don't mm-hmm. know if that's because I'm ignorant or maybe because, you know, I, I sort of know that they're happy. Um, but I keep all my um, babies, whether they're hatchlings or up to a year old, depends on how much food you want to pump into them. I mean, there's some mm-hmm. magnificent growth rates you can get out of these little guys, and I'm sure you can do it with any python. Um, you know, you get a neonate that hatches between 15 and 21 grams, and within 10 to 12 months, that particular animal could be up to 450 to 500 grams in body weight. We're talking an amazing growth rate. Um, you definitely don't want to have that still stuffed in a little Chinese container. Make for interesting yeah. reading in the newspaper, but um, so I, I use like a, a five liter, um, five liter uh, a tub. It's like a, um, a lunch box. It's probably it's probably a, a foot long by half a foot wide by three inches high. Mm-hmm. So it's a decent sort of. It gives it a nice big um, area. Uh, I keep the neonates. So the neonates have a hot spot of thirty six degrees Celsius. Which is, which is quite warm, but I just find that really works for the neonates. Uh, the hatchlings right up to, you know, you can keep them in there up to a year old if you're not power feeding them or anything like that. Um, right. After that, then they move obviously into the, I, I use the V35s, so then they move in. So once they've made the, the grade where I've selected them for future breeding, I'll move them into the V35s. Um, and then they'll spend the next six months in there, and then they usually go straight into there. So 18 months of age, I'll put them straight into the breeding cycle and produce something out of them. Hmm. Uh, all, okay. all the adults, so adults I can keep in V35s or, or, or the V70s, um, and typically that's what I use for all of them. Um, obviously, the spotted pythons get a little bit bigger, so mm-hmm. they would typically more often be in the V70s than the 35s. So so they get a little bit bigger area because when you introduce the second animal into there for breeding, then it's, you know, it just makes it a little bit easier for them to get away from each other or get nice and cuddly with each other. <laughs> right. So what kind of setups are you, like, what, what, are, your, what are your cages, like substrate, hide boxes? Uh, what, what are your basic setups? 
Uh, so a basic setup is I'm, I'm using these little water bowls um, in my neonates. So it's a it's like a black plastic, um, but you can drop in your little deli cups in the top. Mm-hmm. So I can drop a deli cup in the top, you know, fresh water deli cup. If they defecate in it, I can just pull out the deli cup, throw it in the bin, fill up the next one and drop it in. It just makes um, maintaining a large number of babies very easy. I typically use... a, a a product we call, um, what is it? Uh, it's, it's a kitty litter, but it's made out of newspaper. Um, we usually call it Breeder's Choice. Is the, the mm-hmm. It's just a recycled newspaper pellet. I just find that's very absorbent. And, you know, the old days of paper towel in a water bowl, the snake has a drink and then pulls on one side, flips the deli cup over, and it just wets everything, and you come in the next day and... There's just condensation everywhere, and you know I, I just don't like humidity. It's you know I don't like it. <laughs> so yeah. so I went to the kitty litter um, stuff. It's very absorbent. Um, the new bowls allows the snake to hide underneath the bowl, as a, so it's a hide as well as a water bowl. And the good thing there is I was trialing different things where initially I was using paper towel, and the snakes would always get underneath the paper towel, always knock over the deli cup. So then I started using the Breeders' Choice with a piece of cardboard, um, which they would use as a hide, so they'd get underneath the bit of cardboard and the um, the Breeders' Choice there, and they'd feel comfortable. and And I think if the hatchlings are comfortable, they will respond better when it comes to feeding, because right. um, they are notorious to be you know, very difficult to get feeding for some of them. Um, so then as they grow and get bigger, then, you know, I'll go to the aspen. So at the moment I'm using the chipsy snake aspen bedding. Um, I think it's okay. a German product. It's very soft and absorbent, not like the chipsy that I've seen um, in the U.S. It's more of a, a sharp sort of fragmented bedding. I mean, that's that's good, but long term when you see these little snakes feed it, it just scares the hell out of me. Right. Other but, stuff yeah. I'm using very soft and palatable. I mean, you know, you, you can put it in your own mouth and eat it, and you realise that yeah, it'll stick to your mouth. But you know, when it comes to it, you could pass it quite easily, and it wouldn't cause a problem. Right. And that's the Peter, have you, eaten, that... have you eaten the? I've uh, eaten lots of things. Yes. You've eaten it. Okay, so <laughs> you have tried this yourself. You're speaking yeah, from it's, experience. It's, All right. Yeah, I, I'm I'm one of these guys that um, you know I like to try things before I offer them to my animals. Um, there, there's obviously there's, there's a line, right? There's a line probably a little bit I'll further than most people's lines. Yeah, yeah. I'll try the rat. It can't be bad. Yeah. <laughs> it can't be too bad, right? Uh, I, I make them myself. No, I can't. Now. Guaranteed. Yeah, Nick ate one, so it's fine. Yeah, but temperature-wise, uh, um. Temperature-wise for the adult Antaresia, um, uh-huh. you know, they would sit during the summer months on, on a hot spot of 32 degrees Celsius, a uh, cold spot of probably 28 degrees Celsius in the front of the box. And in, in winter, you know, like I would reduce those daytime temperatures, but also uh-huh. the nighttime temperature I think is probably, um, with, with all the species, probably more important um, just to have a nighttime drop. You can always elevate the daytime temperatures. So you can bring them back up. Um, I've even fed 
So if I've got some smaller females that I want to breed and really haven't you know, done what they're supposed to do during the warmer months, yeah, I can breed them and then still feed them smaller offerings during winter. As long as they're getting a, a, a daytime temperature that they are able to digest their food again and just slowly just work with that. But I don't really do anything different for a Mac or a Spotted or a Mac or a Stimmy or a Children's or a Pathensis. I just usually keep them all around about the same. Gotcha. And find that they cool. all respond, respond very decently. I mean, cycling, you know, children's pythons seem to be the first off the, off the, off the run when it comes to cycling. So I'll put children's pythons together. They'll start to do their thing and you go, okay, then the season started. Then usually a month later, the spotted pythons will kick in. Then usually a month later, the, Simpsons pythons, and then usually towards the end of the breeding cycle, is the pathensis will usually kick in. But I, I guess that all comes down to where you live and your temperatures that you're exposed to as well. So, oh, interesting. I try and get a lot of my morning temperatures through my rooms, um, and that helps to, you know, drop those temperatures. I almost reverse cycle during winter so their nighttime temperatures are during the day and their daytime temperatures are during the night because they don't have access to any natural sunlight it just wow. allows me to it just allows me to have more um control over their temperatures during their night cycle which is my day cycle because you know if, if it's dropping down to single digits it it doesn't usually do that in their normal areas Maybe some of the Stimpsons and Pathensis, but not the other guys. Hmm. So they're not as uh, withstanding to uh, really cold temperatures as, say, like a diamond python is. No, no, the diamond is truly the master yeah. of, the, uh, of the cold temperature for sure. Sure. Okay. Um, so we're talking about breeding and... Um, you know, one of the things that was in your book that I thought was interesting was uh, the pre-breeding uh, conditioning. Um, what's your approach to making sure that all your pairings are ready for the upcoming season? Do you do it like a couple months ahead of time? Uh, you know, what's what's your process? Um, for for females that have bred before, it starts it starts from the day they drop eggs. Um, as a rule of thumb, I like to try and get at least twenty to 26 feeds in them before the the next breeding cycle. Um, okay. And those females would always be offered like a wiener rat upwards. So I've got some big um, spotted pythons that'll eat like a 150 gram rat. Um, some of them okay. would take even more, I guess, if I, if I gave them to them. So, so it, that cycle starts soon as they drop a clutch of eggs, try and get food back into them straight away, get that condition back onto them, um, bring them back up, but also try and give them a little bit extra that they're able to expend the following season. So for new females coming in, you know, at a, at a year, that's when I would start. So the countdown for the six months prior to breeding is when I would... I call it, I call it pig feeding, but it's basically... You know, adult um, anteresia, I would feed adult mice, males. So okay. the, the, the adult anteresia males would get adult mice. Um, 
whereas all the females get weaner rats. So therefore, you know, they should be getting a little bit extra fat. Um, the females would get fed every single week, wherever possible, whereas the males would probably get fed every second to every third week. And I mean, the old okay. saying, keep them lean, keep them mean, sort of applies okay. to that. If you're, if, if you're really doing that to an antiresia, every time you touch that box, you're going to get bitten by that male because, you know, they, they do love their food. They are very food orientated. But if you overfeed a male, he will perform, but he won't perform as good as he can on a little bit of a leaner, leaner diet. Okay. Um, one of the other things that... Oh, go ahead. Uh, I'm just saying that, um, and I've had uh, males, some males, I've put over 10 females and still got, you know, 10 clutches. So... Wow. You know, ten? trying... Wow. 10 out of 10, yeah, he did good. 10 out of 10. Wow, that's awesome. That's a bonus for him. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, he, did, he, did, he did really well. And, I mean, it's just all, all these little different things you try over the years to see where, you know, what's going to be more efficient and effective. And, I mean, I, I guess it goes back to my grandfather's thoughts that, you know, he's a farmer. So, therefore, when you farm animals, you know, you try and get the most amount out of your animals. You're putting in the least amount, but obviously maintaining your collection at a point where, you know, it's not detrimental to the animals too. And, and through through those years, you know, if you learned a couple of little tweaks here and there, if you change this, change that, you do this, you do that, you're going to breed them and you're going to do this and you're going to get the results probably a little bit quicker than most other people will. Very cool. So, yeah. <clears throat> uh, you, uh, you know, also in the book, I mean, you know, everybody knows how taxing it is for, you know, female pythons to lay eggs yeah. and lay a clutch and and maternally incubate and all that, you know, but uh, I thought it was interesting that you had, uh, that they use up to 76% of their total body weight uh, goes towards yeah. reproduction. Do you have a weight that you shoot for with, with females, or are you just going by that, that, that rule with how many rats you're feeding them or how much food you're feeding them? Well, yeah, yeah, just um, what what I've learned over the the few years that I've been breeding them and it, I was lucky because I was keeping a lot of that information along the way and then when Nick and Justin were here staying with me and I showed them my collection and luckily enough I was getting eggs and one of those clutches of eggs was a pygmy banded laying a clutch of eggs and that straight, because that's, that's the particular animal that lays the huge clutches um, in body mass okay. compared to their own body weight and and you know straight away you'd pick that female up and her belly was sunken all the way down and she just looked like a bag of bones you looked like someone had ripped all her insides out and there was just nothing it was just completely sunken and the skin almost folded over and touched itself so at at that point you know you know obviously Nick and Justin were amazed that that female would put herself in that situation where she's almost committed that I'm going to have these eggs even if it costs me my life. And I guess that's not the typical way that we think of these animals. We, we think of them as almost like, um, you know, they only do it when the, when the conditions are right. They only do it when, you know, they've got enough food. 
But the thing is, they will put themselves in that position more times than not. So if you're not keeping the food up to them and keeping their condition up to them, they would almost do exactly the same thing, like throwing themselves under a bus for the sake of producing a few eggs. And one of those may make it and replace me. Right. So that makes it a little bit weird and difficult. But when we're talking about nature, nature, you know, just goes on no matter what happens around us. So when, when people say to me, you know, what's the magic number? And I hear all these people blurbing out all these numbers. And, and, it, and I think it takes me back to all that information that I collected over those, that 10 years, all that data of females are X amount of body weight, clutch mass is X amount, you know, and all the rest of it. And you go back and you look at it. And what I found is that I, I have bred these guys um, like a children's python. I've bred a children's python at 125 grams. It was a struggle feeder from day one, but I wanted to get a clutch out of it no matter what. So at 125 grams, I put a male in. The male mated with her. She laid three fertile eggs. Oh, wow. So she laid these eggs, (laughs) and then she just went back onto the food like normal. So I was able to get, you know, that genetic material out of her earlier than what most people would. Most people right. talk about 350 to 400 grams. What we also noticed in collecting all the data from myself and from another place is that most of my animals would be between the 350 to probably the high end of the spectrum was 600 grams. Some of these other collections was between 500 to over a kilo. And then what we did is we compared the number of eggs produced and what we found is that there was almost a linear line where the female's body weight got to a certain weight and the egg production didn't increase. So as, as we would expect, you know, the bigger the animal, the more ability it has to throw at eggs production, producing more eggs and all the rest of it. Right. But that never happened. Huh. And I mean, I've got a particular female that I call the monster. And she's, you know, she she's probably... Just a probably 1.3 meters, 1.4, not a big okay. potted python, but she'll produce between 18 and 22 eggs, and she weighs in at about 500 grams. Wow! So she's not a monster okay. of an animal, but the clutch sizes are a monster clutch, and all of those babies come out firing like they they have their first <laughs> shed and they're already wanting to eat. You know, they're just they're just little machines. Right. Right. So when wow. it comes to sizes, I, I I don't pick a body weight. I, I used to be really conscious about the body weights and be really worried about doing that, but I have a particular project that I want to produce something from, and if it's a uh-huh. female that I suspect that may be a little bit smaller, because you've got to take into, um, into focus the, the egg sizes to, to produce. And obviously, if the females aren't as big, that means in diameter, then the eggs tend to be more elongated, so more slender but long. So they'll still have the same mass as a normal egg. They just look different in a different... Oh, uh, yeah. Huh, that's interesting. So that was one of the, the things I've, I've sort of seen and worked out and 
went, well, that's interesting, but I mean, it makes sense. You know, if you're not the diameter of a, a golf ball, then, you know, if you, if you are the diameter of a golf ball, then you can make a, a golf ball egg. But if you're the diameter of a cigarette, well, then you can't make a golf ball come out of a cigarette. Sure. <laughs> and I mean, most people talk about, oh, but if you breed them too young, they're going to get egg bound. Well, I found the only reason I had a few incidences of animals being egg-bound or unable to pass eggs all goes back to the fact that during winter, I was holding back the supply of fresh water. So there again, the animals weren't as hydrated as they should be. As soon as I made sure that those females had access to water the whole time through winter, then I never had a single incidence of animals being egg-bound. Well, that makes sense. Huh. But that's just that's just my conclusion, yeah. Right. So that's that's all I come up with and I just go, Well, lesson learnt if I did that and that and that had an incident, then I did this and that didn't happen, I continue to do the good stuff. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so. You gotta observe the animals, that's the most important thing and whatever they're telling you that's is, right. uh, that's how I do it, you know. Yeah, I mean, and one of the good things is, you know, people say, oh, is this temperature right for my snake? And I just say to them, well, ask the snake. And they're like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, well, what is the snake doing? You know, right. is, is the snake sitting on the heat all day, every day, on the hot spot? Yes, he is. I said, well, sure. he's not hot enough. I said, because if that snake right. was hot enough, he would be warm enough to be able to move away and come back. Right. You know, and if it's too hot, then he's sitting in the front corner, pushed up against the water bowl, trying to get out. So right. you've you got to watch the animal, observe what the animal's trying to tell you. You know, and try and, yeah, and, try and <laughs> watch the body language. There's, there's, there's so many parameters that go into when you're keeping an animal. You know, your room uh, is your room heated? Is it not heated? Yep. Is it, uh, you know, I mean, is it, what's the what type of of heat are you using? You know, all these different things. What kind of enclosure are you using? <clears throat> all matter. You know, if I give you this, it's not like, you know, baking a cake where I give you a nope. specific recipe and it's going to, you know, I learned that the hard way, um, you know, paying attention. I think we all have. Like, you know, yeah, you know, you just listen to somebody and you say, okay, I'm just going to apply this and this is just going to be easy. And then the next thing you know, it doesn't work. <laughs> You're like, what am I doing wrong? And then actually observe what the animals are telling you. Uh, then you start to learn what works in your room. You know, you sort of use the, you know, somebody with the experience as, the, as a sort of a guide. You know, that's how yes. I, I kind of do it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was, I was very lucky. I, I guess I've been very lucky for most of my reptile keeping life that I've been able to have some very well-known uh, reptile keepers as good friends and being able to see how they do things. Taking that into account, I probably don't do what they do, but, you know, I've learnt from what they do to be able to change the way I keep my stuff. And right. that, that's one of the key elements, you know. I always think knowledge is free. You know, if the hobby's going to thrive, it's only going to thrive because people are successful. You know, and the more people that we can make successful, then the bigger the hobby you will get, yeah. the yeah. bigger the interest you get. 
it's no longer a secluded, isolated underground club where you know you got to say a secret password and then you get a secret <laughs> handshake and you're allowed in and you have three weird-looking dudes sitting in one room playing with their blue tongues. You know, <laughs> don't get me wrong, that probably still happens, but um, right, it's not legal. right. Uh, um, uh, I had a question about uh, male combat. Is this something that uh, is uh, that is like you use a lot, like say uh, us carpet python people do? Well, you carpet python guys are freaks, you know. You guys are, <laughs> That's true. You guys are everywhere. No matter where I'm We're not arguing. Place, you know, you, yeah. No, no. You're all through the U.S., all through Australia. All through Europe, Germany, <laughs> everywhere. You guys, you, you guys are just in taking over the planet. I think ant guys will slowly come through and wipe you all out, but um, you know, oh, there it is. Yeah. only about fifty years behind you guys. But you know, we're getting there. We're getting there. But um, the male to male combat, I, I don't do any male combating, even with my carpets. Um, what I like to do is I throw in a fresh shed skin and let them fight it out. I just gotcha. find it easier to um, let a, you know, if, if, if you've got a, mostly with the anteresia, you know, they're not too fussy. They'll they'll mate with a piece of string if you're really lucky. You just throw them in there and they'll sort of go to straight to work. Um, so male-to-male combat, no, I don't do that. Um, if you're putting something together that you think a male and a female, you, you find out very quickly. Um, right. But typically, no, I, I don't do that, no. I mean, if I if I need to okay. stimulate someone, like I said, I'd, I'd use a fresh skin, and it can be even from yeah. the same male. Yeah. Just stick it in a Ziploc bag and chuck it in the cage, and he gets all fired up, thinks there's someone else in there, and yeah, you know, I, I learned that lesson probably a hard way with some olive pythons. I put um, okay. two males together, then pulled one of the males out and threw a female in, and this male still thought there was a male in there, and he didn't like the fact that she was being quite amorous and he thought that she was taking it the wrong way so yeah doesn't work well when you're trying to wrestle you know three and a half meter snakes from trying to eat each other <laughs> no <laughs> no I would think uh, yeah that would be uh, difficult um, yeah mine are still growing up so I've still got a long ways before that uh, <laughs> that happens with me with owls but <laughs> Olives are oh, and that might be closer to you, right? Yeah, probably closer to me. I mean, olives can eat cool species. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, I really they are very cool. They're very intelligent. Yeah, I mean, like when you see them on the internet or you know on a Facebook or whatever, you're kind of like, right. yeah, okay. But when you see them in person, my lord, what yeah. impressive! Snake. I mean, such a cool snake. Yeah. I mean, they don't obviously compare to things like berms and retics, but I, th- I really think they're in a different world of their own. They, they, they are just. I don't know. There's something about them. They're almost majestic in their own right. You know. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and they're Absolutely. always hungry. Always. Oh hungry. yeah. They, love, they don't they ever love stop. God. Yeah. <laughs> I love this yes. I, I, you know, it's 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 the same with Anteresia. Uh recently I uh, I acquired 
a pair of Stimpsons, a pair of Cape York Spotteds, and uh, a pair of Pygmy Pythons. So, you know, when you see them in on the Internet, again, you know, you just think, oh, yeah, they all kind of look alike. But I don't know. When you see yeah. them in person, it's a whole... It's a whole different thing. Uh, I couldn't believe a pygmy python. <laughs> I, I couldn't get over the fact of how small, you know, this snake was. Yep. And I'm thinking, wow, I, this is a year old. And what is it going <laughs> to look? What does it look like when it hatched out? <laughs> I mean, oh yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> I can't. Have, oh man. Well, we'll get into uh, trying to. You know, get these guys going because that's probably the one, uh, the one thing um, that kind of shied me away from wanting to breed them is the whole, you know, feeding aspect of it. But the one question I was going to ask, as far as uh, breeding, is there a certain amount of lockups, and do you put the, the male and female together? I mean, I know you said that uh, you had one male go through ten females. Um, Yep. How do you how do you rotate that? You know, a couple of days in, a couple of days out. Next girl type of deal. Uh, well, I've, I've got a couple of males doing the same thing now. Obviously, um, so I've got some het albino males, and I sort of rotate them over different things. So they um, the males are the visitors, so the girls feel comfortable in their own homes, and I just introduce the males, and that way the male can do what he would normally do, search out a female, find her, conquer her, and then try to get the hell out of there as quickly as possible. So once um, once, I, once I confirm a lock and I see a lock, I'll, you know, I aim for at least three three lock-ups. Okay. But then again, you, would, you know, there's some males I've seen have mated you know, eight, nine times to a female, and then the female doesn't bear anything. So mm-hmm. it can come down to, I mean... I think it can also come down to compatibility as well, um, whether or not they're compatible genetically. Okay. Maybe the, some animals just won't produce for good reasons and maybe they're too too similar genetically. Or right. maybe um, maybe there could be other things involved. But, I mean, typically, you know, they you, you see a lock-up or two and you almost know that you're going to get something that's not like not like some of the other Australian species you see mate and you know roll over and ovulate and all the rest of it and then flick back over and start eating again and it can be quite disheartening but um, yeah once they start inverting or rolling on their side or you know the female start even even already like I start um, at the end of May Sorry, April, May. So at the beginning of May, I, I start introducing children's pythons. So okay. even already now, I can tell which females are gravid. Um, really? I've also, been, also for the last couple of years, been doing some ultrasounding as well. So trying to pick that magic number. I mean, you look at the ball python guys, you know, they go in, they ultrasound, gets to us, you know, the, they get to a certain size and then they put a male in, they pull it out and they go, okay, the male's done his job, blah, blah, blah. And they're making it more efficient. It's almost like a a machine, the way that they produced all pythons at one stage. But right. you're just trying to learn, you know, and I think that's the best part about it is always being interested and always being taught different things by the animals. 
and constantly in search of knowledge, you know, just trying to learn. And it's, no one else is really doing it because, you know, they're considered an entry-level python here in Australia. They're probably considered, as my good mate Rico Wilder used to call them, the dirt snakes of the world. <laughs> um, you know, like... They're a small, I guess when you compare them even to like corn snakes, they can be small and boring sort of in, in colour and in size and all the rest of it, but they're, they're really, really cool animals, you know, when you really get into them. Absolutely. Very I would cool. agree. So, so, yeah, the number of lots, like I say, I'd like to see at least two or three and then start to watch the female's body language and just see what she starts to do and then, you know, you can almost pick which ones are have the job done and then if you want you can reintroduce the male um, the males will have a, a slightly the males will be a little bit more active before the females are ready obviously so usually the first lock up if it's the first males breeding for the season and he locks up with a female I would consider that as a dud um, a dud lot it's only when he starts actively working through the females or the individual female a couple of times, then I would go, okay, then, you know, he's, he's starting to shoot the good stuff, no, no more blanks. Right. Hmm. That's, just, okay. that's just how I look at it. I can't base that on anything at the moment. I haven't, I haven't um, you know, I haven't taken a male and put it with a particular female, let him mate once and then pulled her off and just went, okay, let's see how this goes. I haven't done that yet. But that's another thing that I need to look at and try. Okay. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Um, just to see, like you say, what, what the about... magic number is, I don't know. <laughs> um, you said at the beginning of the show, you talked about maternal incubation. Um, yes. you've, you've done maternal incubation with uh, Antaresia. What was the experience like? Did you have to do anything special um, as no. far as... <laughs> no, <laughs> nothing, <right? laughs> nothing. I've, done, I've done it a few times. I've done it over a few right. years. And, you know, I used to offer nest boxes to the females and then the females would push the nest box all around the enclosure. And you're like, why the hell is she doing that? You know, I know the best spot for her is here. But, mm-hmm. you know, she'd get in behind it and nudge it around and you're just like, I don't know what she's doing. And then you come back and she's laid eggs in the nest box and you're like, okay, maybe she did know what she was doing. The condition... Apparently I know nothing. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. You know, the temperatures were right, but they weren't in the right... Well, I should say the conditions were right, but they probably weren't in the right temperature zone within that enclosure that I've given her. So she's moved this moist nest box, you know, away from the heated section to almost the middle of the cage where you've got a hot side and a cold side. She can obviously bask one side of her body towards the heat, but also be able to rotate her body around to get away from the heat and also still be close enough to the water where she can be able to stretch out and drink while she's still touching her eggs and pull herself back. Hmm. So there's all these little things that I, I sort of watched and learned. And then I thought, usually if the females laid eggs, I try and feed her straight away. And I thought, I wonder if they'll take food while they're still on the eggs. So instead of feeding them a wiener rat, I would get like a wiener mouse or an adult mouse. And I'd go, well, you know, this is half the size, if not a third of the size they'd normally eat. So hopefully it's not going to, you know, cause any problems where she's going to strike out and roll the eggs or do something silly. But the other thing you learn when you maternity incubate is 
the, the eggs can go through a friggin' tumble dryer and they'll still hatch. <laughs> you know, the, the females, just, they're just ruthless the way they treat their eggs and the eggs hatch. But anyway, they, they would come out, they'd grab the food and, you know, they would be close to the nest box, they would eat the food and go back and fill in their eggs. So, you know, these females were able to still hold the same conditioning as, if not better than some of the animal, other animals which are pumping food back into it. And they seem to be just a more pleasant animal. You're like, you know, you open the enclosure, she's sitting on the eggs, she looks at you, you know, you could reach in, you can part her coils to see their eggs. And, you know, these eggs would not be nice white parts. You're looking at, you know, parchment shells as we see in our incubators, but more like brown shriveled up turds that almost looked completely doomed. And yet, you know, it, it's instead of hatching at 42 days, at 52 to 55 days, their little heads would pop out. And and I just think that's, that's amazing, you know. I just really like it. I think it's just great. It's a great learning circle. And that's why I encourage, try to encourage other people to do it. It, the only the only difficult part is making sure that you know in an estimated time frame when she's going those eggs are going to hatch is that you're around because if you're keeping them in a V35 rack or in a homemade tub rack that's fine but when you have hatchling enteresia that can go anywhere a dollar bill can go then it can <laughs> be an issue. It can be a small issue. Yeah, everybody could be out. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, an issue yeah. that's everywhere. Yeah. So, but yeah, I, I just really think uh, maternal incubation. I think we can learn a lot more as reptile keepers from doing it. Cool. Um, um, and it does make it does take away a lot of the stress from artificial incubating too. <laughs> <laughs> right, because now it's her problem, and all you have to do is just watch her. Right. That's right. And if it doesn't work, then I can blame her. That's Her, right. yes. Takes all the responsibility off my shoulders and places it back on the animal. <laughs> is, I'm the wealth of knowledge, and I would never have made that mistake. Exactly. This is great. So, um, <laughs> but how do you set up for artificial incubation? Well, I used to use uh, vermiculite. So the old vermiculite, uh, equal weight of vermiculite mm. to water. Um, but the vermiculite in Australia is is mostly um, designed for horticulture. So it's not really, you know, it's all the micro fine sort of stuff. You know, the bigger, the chunkier, the better the results. But then, um, you know, we get a a lot of, I don't know, it's it's quite contaminated, the vermiculite we get. So, you know, you get a good batch and then you get the batch where everything that touches it just seems to grow, go green, you know. Right. Um, So then I started using a lot of perlite, and you could even use the vermiculite on the bottom, have a perlite barrier on top, sit your eggs on top. Um, and even the containers, the old, we used to use like old ice cream containers, cut the hole in the lid and put your glad mm-hmm. wrap or cling wrap over the top, clip your lid down so now you've got your window, you can see what's going on, keeps the humidity right, does all this. And then right through to now and for the last couple of years I've just been doing the suspended method and it just works so much better and easier and I mean I put a, a little dab of F10 in the water mm-hmm. and then I just rack them up and just let them go Jeez. 
Um, you know, with some of the other stuff, like uh, some of the Aspidites and even some of the Liasis guys, you know, you just you can, you can just take the eggs, put some perlite in the container, drop the eggs straight on them, and just chuck them in a incubator. You don't even need to add mo- any moisture at all. Okay. I mean, that's kind of what I do with my carpets, but um, I, I hear, and this is just from the grapevine, that it's a good idea to separate Antheresia offspring right away. Is that because there is a rampant thing of cannibalism that happens pretty easy? <laughs> they like to feed. Oh, my God. They're not, really, they're not really picky on what they feed on. <laughs> um, usually, usually what happens is... Um, so my eggs will hatch. I'll leave them in the same container. Um, obviously, as soon as the first one hatches, I'll put a small jelly cup in there with water because they can't get to the water in the suspended. Mm-hmm. So I'll give them water so they can get the water. After they have their first shed, that's when I'll separate every single one out. And if you don't do that, with children I, more often than not, you're going to end up with some rampant uh, cannibalism, as you said. And usually what happens there is, you know, the one that eats the optimus at one will keep it down for a day or two, but then it will regurge it, and then it usually kills the other one. But in some instances, I've actually had them eat their cage mate, digest it, and then they come back looking for more, you know? Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) So So either either it dies and you lose two, or you get this one that somehow has a taste for its siblings and is cruising for the rest of them. Yeah, yeah. That's a lose-lose. All right. Yeah, it's a a double whammy, that one. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I I just wait. Once they've had their first shed, I haven't had any problems until they've had their first shed. Um, Usually once they've had their first shed, yes. Um, If you've got a really snappy bunch of little babies, um, you know, you walk past the box, open the lid, and they'll all be sitting there waiting to try and nip at you. That's a that's a bad sign. It's a good <laughs> sign that they will eat well, but it's a bad sign that if you walk past the cage or the hatch box, they're going to grab one of their friends and take them down. <laughs> so it's almost, almost like a, it's almost like hitting the dominoes and let them all fall down. Once he snaps and grabs it, they just sort of wrap straight away, and they're just in that zone. And they won't stop, even though they, you know, even though they're gorging 100% of their own body weight, they don't understand that it's a death sentence. Entries are freaking brutal. All right, wow. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so now establishing neonates, because um, I guess we're still kind of falling victim to a lot of the rumors of like what to do with baby. Antaresia is kind of like still falling back on the stigma because there aren't that many that are being produced over here yet. Yeah. Um, yep. So uh, are they difficult feeders? And uh, what kind of tips do you have you can share with us for getting them going? They can be quite difficult. And, I mean, even even for me, I get some that are just so difficult, you just want to, I don't know, just give up, do something mm-hmm. crazy. I mean, some of the... Um, some of them I've assist fed for three months before they'll take their own food by themselves. So I can understand that if you've never kept them before, mm-hmm. um, 
you know, I, I sit back and watch people, they, they breed them and they're like, yeah, I breed them. Wow, I'm going to sell them and make all this money. And then they hatch them and they're like, oh, yeah, check them out. Start taking pre-orders now. And then six weeks later, they're like, oh, my God, it won't eat. What am I supposed to do? And then all the words of wisdom start to flourish throughout the Internet. And you just sit back and, and it's almost like a train wreck. Oh, they're dying. It's so upsetting and blah, blah, blah. And you're just like, wow. If, if only people did a little bit more research before they threw themselves under that bus. You know, mm-hmm. it's almost it, it was almost inevitable that that was going to happen. But they they can be quite ruthless in not wanting to eat what, what, what we want to feed them. And I okay. guess that's... That's the part there is what we want to feed them is not what they particularly like to eat initially. But what I have found is the earlier, the better. So like I said, I've got some stuff um, I'll even try feeding before it has its first shed. Mm-hmm. Um, so spotted pythons, you know, you can get them to eat before their first shed. Yeah, you know, those things will just be ruthless from that day on. They'll just power feed like a demon. Um, then there's other stuff, uh, you know, higher temperatures. So the 36 degrees hotspot for a hatchling is what I find sort of elevates their body temperature, gets it right up there and working and sort of stimulates their hunger a little bit more. I offer um, freshly defrosted pinkies off tweezers and it's usually the, the slap feeding you know, you, you can hold the pinky in front of the snake and it will sort of sit there, flicker its tongue and they'll either grab it and wrap it, which you, you start to do a happy dance, or, mm-hmm. you know, they'll tongue flicker it and then they'll almost do like a, a backflip going, what the hell is that? Whoa, I need to get away from this thing. If they no, do run, that, run it can be... Yeah, if they do that one, you just go, oh, okay, this one's going to be difficult. But, <laughs> I mean, nine times out of ten... It, it it can be as, as simple as you just holding a pinky and on a pair of tweezers and just poking at the snake, you know, in that, mm-hmm. that area that's about a third of the way down and hoping to get that natural response where they sort of turn, snap, and then wrap. It's almost like a pretty cool tune there, turn, snap, and wrap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I find that works, and I, I get... Um, you know, in the initial couple of weeks of them hatching and shedding and, and going, you, you can get anywhere between 80 to 85% of them feeding straight away. Awesome. There's always going to be that um, problematic number. But, I mean, it all depends. Mm-hmm. If, if, you've, if you've only bred 30 children's pythons, you know, having five that need to be assist-fed is, is fine. But if you've bred a lot more than that, then that number obviously elevates and that becomes a bit of an issue in its own right. Right. And when you're assist feeding any small snake, always go small. Um, There's nothing worse than seeing someone trying to shove a, you know, four or five gram pinky down a 20 gram snake. If if they eat it by themselves, that's fine. Right. But, um, you know, they've made allowances to eat that by themselves it's like you know, trying to push a full roast down your throat. It's not going to work. If you're no, halfway but... and you start to tear things up, and not good. So, how would you? What would you recommend uh, doing? I mean, how would you assist feed 
something as small as like a baby pygmy python? Uh, well, you can just use pinky legs. Oh, just a pinky, pinky. Or you can use depending. I mean, some of the pink, some of the percentages can be different sizes, but uh-huh. typically, um, I know most people use rat tails and mouse tails. But okay. if you haven't cut the end, um, you know, and there's an exposed bone, and then they push that down the throat, it just sort of slices them up on the inside. It can't be good for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but even pinky heads. So you cut a pinky head off, it's like a jelly bean. <laughs> and right. what you'll find with a tethensis, if you can get something in their mouth to the back of their jaw and yeah. you're able to push it in, like you're able to put it in pretty quickly and let them sit on the cage floor, you know, 90% of the time they'll sort of sit there, sort of stare at you and then they'll, it's almost like they don't know what's going on, they'll just eat it. So you better off smaller. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's once it's in the back of their like back of their jaw, which they don't have a jaw, but where the back of your jawbone is, to the back of their head, and you just put it in there mm-hmm. and put them down. It's almost like they just feel comfort and calm, and then they start to eat it. Hmm. And the jelly bean or the pinky head, you know, once you've severed their head, it definitely has that little slimy ability to slide in a little bit easier too. That is true. That's, oh, yeah. I mean, there's so many other things. Um, I know guys use, you know, they pop the pinky's head, they pop the brain. Um, yeah. Yeah, fish, fish works well for um, scenting, um, mostly hmm. for the Stimson's pythons and stuff like that. But, um, okay. you know, I've heard people use yogurt to get the gut going and all the rest of it. But, I, I, yeah, I don't know about that. Have you right. tried something? Because you have a lot of the animals that, or you have access to a lot of the animals that could be considered prey items. Have you thought about sending with, you know, gecko or maybe skink or something like that? I've tried. I've tried with gecko feces and skink feces, and but you know, I just I, I don't seem I don't seem the positives in feeding reptiles to reptiles. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's almost, it doesn't, uh, I don't know. I mean, we, we don't really have invasive species of geckos and skinks, so you're not really, you know, you're not being a crusader by catching them and then feeding them off to something else. Plus, yeah. the area where I live really isn't within the home range of their natural food preferences. So, yeah, like I, I tried for a number of years all different techniques for scenting and you know, you, you have hits and misses all over the place. Mm-hmm. There's nothing consistent. Um, I know there's guys that collect skinks and then they put them through a blender. So they oh have a skink God. puree and then they dip the pinky heads in there and they go, oh, it works every time. Well, you know, if it works 50% of the time, it can't be every time. A normal pinky will work 50% of the time. So... Yeah. yeah. How about if uh, so, yeah. have you had any success with wrapping, like say a gecko shed or something like that? I've tried gecko sheds, yeah. and, and yeah. at one stage I was even trialling uh, skink tails because that's the lesser of the two evils. You know, you're not killing the whole animal; you're removing a segment of the tail. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, right. you're not only getting you're getting almost like the oils out of the tail, and you can use the oils as a scenting. But there again, you know, I found that 
it worked, but did it work any better than anything else? Not really. Right. So it wasn't, you know, a bigger encouragement to race out and start cutting tails off skinks all over the place. Right. <laughs> so. right. Do you find? So, yeah, uh, I'm I, curious. Do you find that with each generation of, uh, you know, it, it seems like you know people selectively breed for you know color and pattern all the time, but it would mm-hmm. it would it would you would think that you would be able to selectively breed for, say, you know, if you have a children's python that comes out and they take a mouse, you know, right from the gate, that you know, over time, you would be able to just have them take it, you know, without any issues. Is, is that something that you found in your breedings? Uh, I've, I've been doing that for a few years now, and to say, does it work any better? It probably does, but you still get those problematics. I mean, if you've got a clutch of 10 children's pythons, you know, 10, right. 15 years ago, you would have had two or three of them eat unassisted straight off the bat. Now you're getting right. to eight. So you could say, Both yes, that's working, better. but to, yeah, but, you know, it's one of those things, you know, you're not dealing with a lot of um, wild caught stuff anymore. You're starting to deal with more and more captive bred animals. So right. and that's, that's another whole interesting discussion, you know, like birds and mammals, their parental skills are usually passed on by teaching their offspring, different food types, different, you know, different things. Right. Whereas with reptiles, they don't have that capability. Are they capable to pass that on genetically? Don't know. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> it's, it would be an interesting uh, study for sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, okay. So... I would, I, you know, I know you're working with some of the, I mean, you have one of the most extensive Antaresia collections going in the world. So as far as morphs go, you know, what are you working with and what are you most excited about this year uh, that you hope to produce? Um, well, I guess a lot of the double combination stuff. So... Um, You've got your marble children's and your T-positive uh, albinos or albinos. Albinos. <laughs> <laughs> I always get torn to shred over that, apparently. So. But anyway, well, so, uh, it is what it is. We got yelled at for a pronunciation of Brisbane and Brisbane and Brisbane, other things. Oh, yeah. yeah, we got we got yelled at. So. Brisbane, yep. Yep, yep. <laughs> Oh well, it doesn't matter. But uh, yeah, I suppose all the double double sort of recessive trait stuff. I mean, the the single gene stuff is is going through slowly with some of them. Um, some of the different antiregions. Some of them they've you know they've been around for fifteen years. Uh, but it's now the combining of the two recessive traits that are starting to become more and more. Interesting, I guess, because, you know, the carpet python guys have not done it. Um, right. And a, a lot of our anteresia, you know, are becoming a little bit more abundant, you know. I, I guess most carpets can breed between 15 and 25 uh, eggs a season, whereas most of the anteresias, depending on the size, you know, between 8 and 12. So we can be limited that way, but once they get going, you know, 18 months between generations, 
can definitely catch up very quickly, if not overtake. Right. So for me, I, I really like the um, the platinum maculosa, the platinums. Yes. I really think there's something funky and weird going on there in so many different levels. Um, most genes that we look at these days either affect colour or pattern, and in some instances they affect colour and pattern. Um, the platinum definitely affects colour and patterns. What that's going to do, I, I don't know. I mean, I've been breeding them now for a few years, and I, I would hope that I've got a pretty good understanding of how it works now and and the opportunities that it's producing. I mean, within that single gene already, it's producing animals that are expressing almost um, exantic-like so we're talking silver, black and white animals right through to wow. animals that have, you know, high yellow um, hues with the white belly, but also the, the patterns themselves. So the actual blotches get fragmented. It's almost like, um, almost like Lego blocks. So they have all these different coloured Lego blocks stacked together and that's sort of how it fragments the actual blotches. And as they grow, the colours do change a fair bit too. That's cool. And then and then with some of the animals, um, you'll get some animals that will look like they've got no patterns at all. So they're almost like a patternless spotted python, which is a little bit weird. And then <laughs> along the way with all of that happening because everything that I'm breeding from came from three individual animals that I acquired back in 2007, I think, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, you're getting all these random white blotches appearing. So the, the high amount of white blotches, you know, like just appearing all over the body. And then it's almost, in some of the instances, I've got a couple of animals now that almost look like calico, um, so you have that normal yellow, then all of a sudden that yellow is dropping out with this high, almost like a high yellow popping through occasionally here and there all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I saw that really on weird. one of your uh, one of your videos. They, that that calico look was really really cool. Yeah, it's it's really funky looking, and I mean, I, I don't know how to explain it. I don't know what's going on, um, but. You know, I know how to produce more of them, <laughs> and uh, I just think they're getting better and better. You know, like I, I just don't understand how to explain what's happening there. And you know, I mean, you, you can get a really good variety of the babies, and yet at a year old, they look, yeah, ninety percent of them look far better than what they look like as hatchlings. And then you get this other component where they don't look the same, but they actually look weird. They just they look really pixelated, if 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 you know what I mean. That's cool. It's it's, it's yeah. and it's all within the same same group of animals. And like I say, they're not, you know, they're not. There's no real outside influence by anyone else's line. It's just these three particular animals that got off this one guy that originally found them. I mean, I, I don't. I'm not the first one to produce them. I'm I'm always willing to admit that, but I'm I sure hope I'm the guy that's willing to perfect it. Yeah, that's cool though. Well, yeah. yeah, from what I've seen so far, they're like, I think that's probably they're my awesome. favorite more uh, uh, in the Antaresia group. 
It's the platinum. I don't know. That Marvel. Cool. <laughs> yeah. We can only dream, Owen. We can only Mar- dream. I, yeah. <laughs> well, until they well, find the Marvel, portal. Dude, the Marbles is another one. I only, um, I only just got some beginning of last year, so it's really new for me. There's a... There's another guy over here called David Evans. He's been working with them for a few years now. And I, I got some off him and I got some off uh, Southern Cross Reptiles. Yeah. And um, yeah. even though, you know, that gene hasn't been around long, it's already starting to show some really weird characteristics. You know, um, some of the animals hold that yellow. Some of the animals are more orange. Some of the animals go almost chocolate with white highlights. That's cool. So can, it's just such a varied sort of thing in color and pattern, and to me that makes it interesting because it's not consistent. Yeah. You know, it's like a it's it, you just don't know what you're going to get. You just don't know what which way it's going to go, what direction, or anything like that. No one really knows at the moment. There was um, awesome. one particular animal that was produced that um, half its face. It's got the normal characteristics of a normal children's python, but the rest of the animal is is, is a marble. That's so cool. <laughs> and then and then there's another one that's been produced already, and they're breeding it this year. It's like a, almost like a, an orange snake with a white dorsal line, and that's a marble. So they're all coming out very quickly, and I wouldn't be surprised long term that if we work out that. You know, it's a combination of three or four different traits jammed into the one animal. And I guess it's only when we start outcrossing it that we'll start to peel, you know, those particular traits apart from each other. Makes sense. I, I could be wrong, but, you know, that's, that's <laughs> the way I look at it. I think, I think there could be something there, like big time. Um, some of the other stuff, the melanistic stuff, that's locality for a lot of the, a lot of the animals. Um, you've got the Elko Island Children's. They're like mm-hmm. really dark, almost black-looking animals. Um, and then you've got the Ebony Children's, which is something I'm working on. Um, they've got like silver eyes. So I really think there's something in that. It's not a straight recessive trait. I've worked that one out the hard way. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I try. I'm, I'm, I'm trying. But every, for every project, you know, you've got to dedicate... 40 to 50 boxes for that project. Right. And it all starts to add up pretty quickly. But, I mean, yeah, I think that stuff's going to look really cool. The um, the Albino Mac stuff, there's some problems with it, but without crossing, it seems to be working a bit better. Um, That's, good. That's good. Yeah, I'm not a genetic whiz, but it doesn't take long for you to understand that of all the hets that are available... At a certain stage, all came from this. All had the same sire, right? And that sire had an issue. Then it doesn't. You know, I'm not a. Like I say, I'm not a brainsmith, but uh, I can work it out pretty quick that that particular animal's genetics code was passed on, and it did have some issues. So we want the code, but we just want to reprogram it. Right. 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 Stuff like here. Like with uh, yeah, Grand yeah, I think, I think the hognose, hognose is one of them, wasn't it? <clears throat> um, where the first lot of hognose, the albino hognose you guys had, had a lot of genetic deformities. 
Yeah, and then, I mean, even if you stay with carpet python, uh, granite oh, yeah. IJs were so inbred that eventually yep. we kept getting clutches with no eyeballs. And apparently people want eyeballs on their snakes. So it kind of threw a whole wrench in the breedings right there is that, like, I, I believe one of the main guys over here, uh, a guy named Will Leary, produced an entire yep. clutch of nothing head eyes. So nice. through outcrossing, and I mean, and Nick is a big proponent of the outcrossing for the IJs. Um, oh, yeah. We've, we've gotten healthier and actually better-looking granites than we ever did before. So Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I'm sort thing. of <clears throat> under the simple thoughts. You know, I outcrossed them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, put a, put a het over a normal animal, produce 50% hets. You're playing the odds game, you know. But, yeah. Um, last year I put two of those together, and so I put two fifty percent posets together and produced a an albino, which was hitting the odds, which is awesome. But the best thing apart yeah. from that was that when I outcrossed them, I outcrossed them to my striped max, oh. and produced a, a striped albino. So you hit even those odds. Like you hit so double when the I odds. seen the animal, I went, "Oh, okay. Well, at least I know now they're both hits." You know, I thought that's pretty cool. And then when it came out, I'm like, what the hell is that? <laughs> where, where, did, where did that come from? You know, and, and then you go, back and you go, oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. Did I, did this because, <laughs> I did this because that was a stronger, it was a, it was a stronger sort of line of animals to work with to put it into and see what happened. And it was like, oh, that's right. Right. And, and from then on, you did it on purpose. Everything was done. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah, it was years and years of dedication. I was not dedication. surprised. Yeah, I knew that was no, going to happen. <laughs> I predicted that. It was definitely going to yeah. happen. Then, but, I mean, even even in that clutch, you know, she laid four eggs. Um, uh, she wasn't a big animal. She was only like 220 grams. But I was in a hurry to try and work out whether or not she was, that, well, both of them were or weren't pets. And right. um, she laid four eggs. Um, only three of them made the distance and one of them was an albino. Awesome. So you can imagine the happy dance. It was like, oh, yeah, well, you know. Yeah. So Finally, the gods are smiling. Finally. I mean, and, <laughs> and, this, is, and, and this is something kind of newish because, I mean, uh, like, what what have you seen in the reptile industry in Australia now as opposed to what it was 10 years ago? It's 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 there's so many ways it's gone. I mean, one of the bad ways I look at it is there's not too many reptile keepers you can talk to or big time breeders they call themselves now that mm-hmm. have a snake that's older than five years of age. Okay. So to me that's a bit that's a bit upsetting, you know, there's no more the love of the animals. It's a money making thing. Five years ago, even ten years ago, that was sort of the heyday for the Australian reptile hobby, that's when people were making investments to make money. And that sort of filled up really quick because our population is 26 million. You know, let's say 1% of that are reptile keepers all over the country. That's tiny. Whereas you guys Mm -hmm. would have 26 million reptile keepers. Yeah. Probably. So it's, 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 you know, like... Our, our industry or hobby or whatever they like to call it isn't as big as what everyone wants it to be, and it probably never will be because our population just doesn't allow it to to be. 
but it can be at a point where there are a few good breeders who can make decent amount of money out of it, as well as mm-hmm. produce quality animal. It's, it makes it's, sense. It's just, it's just been really weird over the last five years. Like, it's it's almost like a going joke. Um, you know, how long are these breeders going to last for? You know, they all have their own web pages and social media and mm-hmm. everything, and then two two years later, they they disappear. And it's like, oh, okay, wow. weird. And you guys get two we, years out of them. We usually get yeah, like four months. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we we don't we, we're not spending you know like thousands of dollars, like seventy thousand or a hundred thousand dollars on snakes here. You know, like right. you'd be lucky to get five thousand dollars in a top end purchase. Right. You know, and and those days of guys selling ten of those animals straight off the bat are gone. You know, there's you might you know people might pay it off over a year now. A five thousand uh, dollar animal. It's, you know, it's just it's just a different sort of climate. It had its heyday for a short period of time. Right. Yeah, not anymore. But yeah, I mean, I was here long before snakes were worth money. You know, like I used to swap and trade with friends, and that was what it was. And then right. you know it became something, and then everyone wanted in, and then. Everyone wants to make money out of it. And now it's like there's still people trying to make money out of it, but it, it's hard when people turn around to you because when you apply for a license, you get given a license number. Uh-huh. If you've been around long enough, you know how the license numbering system works. So you know uh-huh. what the old school guys' numbers are compared to what the the new guys so even someone that's kept something for two years advertises their business and says, oh, I've got this, this, and this, and I've been doing this, blah, 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 and you look at their license number and you go, he's been around for two years. Yeah. You know, it's sort of yeah. almost... It's it's false advertising, and it's just... It's a bit upsetting because that that knowledge that they're trying to pass on, which is very limited, is really, uh-huh. this is the type of animal you want, yeah, you know, people ask me, should I get this, should I get that? And I'm like, I'm not going to tell you what you should get because I'm a reptile breeder. I'll tell you what I want to sell you. I yeah. want you to tell me what you want. If I don't have it, I can tell you some other reptile breeders or recommend some other reptile breeders that may have what you are looking for. I said, never ask a reptile breeder what you want. You've got to tell the reptile uh-huh. breeder what you want. And yeah. there's a lot of people out there willing to take advantage of that situation. You know, it's just right upsetting. But I mean, you guys see that everywhere, all day, every day. Yeah, but way. our guys don't have license numbers, so we have to just kind yeah, of yeah. Well, that's, spot that's a way to shoot a hole in them, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like Eight-year-old kid walks up to a bench and says, "What do you think <laughs> I need? I think you need a reticulated python." And he takes over a retic. Yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not exactly so you are exactly correct. That's exactly uh, well, what we've you seen. Mean. We've seen at shows where uh, the Nile crocodile. I mean, oh, that's oh. like uh, or cobra. Venomous uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> legal in PA. Well, yeah, that's, that's Darwinism at its best, right? <laughs> <laughs> One can only hope, but uh, yeah. <laughs> 
You're exactly correct. So this is where you see the hobby now. What about 10 years down the road? Where do you see it at then? Are all the new guys going to get out and you're going to go back to trading reptiles with your friends? Maybe. If, if <laughs> I do, I've got, to, uh, I've got to spark my game up. Yeah. <laughs> no one with dirt snakes anymore. Stop selling to people. It's, it's like, yeah. Here's one. Take three for free. <laughs> but um, I mean, I mean, morph-wise, obviously, you know, once, yeah, you know, I, I I have travelled a fair bit and seen your guys' sort of shows over there, and it just opens my mind. And I mean, without being horrible, I just think a lot of Australians don't understand there's a whole world out there. You know, like they um, sit at home and go, "Oh, I'm the best at breeding carpet pythons." Well. Carpet pythons really aren't that hard to breed. You know, they're, they're <laughs> <Nope>. quite a, <laughs> to, to be honest, Shut up. I'm, a, I'm an ant guy, but I can breed uh-huh. carpet pythons. You know, like, um, and I mean, they're not that hard to breed because there's only five guys in Australia doing it. They're not that hard right. to breed because you look all over the world, someone's breeding carpet pythons somewhere. Right. And right. Right. so, like, it's only when you start to realize that there's a whole world out there with so many people doing so many different things positively for the hobby and keeping in general that you realize that when you come home, you're really just another, you know, just another speck in the universe. You're not someone, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think of myself as anything more than just a guy that has a few anteresia, you know, like, yeah, I've probably got more than most, but, <laughs> that's just the way it is. You right. Know? Like, I, I right. don't... Yeah, I just think it's... Yeah, I don't know. I just think it's uh, <laughs> very... Um, grow, yeah, ground your feet on the earth a little bit more to realise that there's so much more out there and so many people are doing so much better than, you know, for, for the good of everything than yourself. Right. Yeah. It's probably a bit weird and philosophical, but... Forgive me for those hey, horrible things. Hey, we, we can get into that every once in a while on the show. We have to get to the philosophical. Um, yes. I uh, wish I, yeah. I wish in 10 years from now Australia was exporting. Not so much yeah. exporting, to be honest, but exporting. To be honest, <laughs> my, my, my opinion and a few of the other guys is quite simple. You know, like if the Australian government was absolutely switched on, it would allow legal exportation of reptiles. If that meant the animals yeah. needed to be, uh, you know, have a some genetic testing done, uh, microchipping, and all the facilities needed to be inspected on a you know, routine basis, and you could only deal with certain places outside of the country and then be charged, because it's all about money revenue, and then be charged... Right let's say $100,000 for the privilege, I think you would, number one, weed out the people that were serious uh-huh. compared to the people that are not serious. Number two, you're going to stop smuggling because if you've taken yep. away yep. The, the smuggler's ability to send stuff out as a barter card to get stuff in, then nothing will be coming in. Yeah, it'll still happen. It's not going to stop it, but it's going to make it you know, less worthwhile because they can get stuff out of the country legally now. And then, um, you know, the Australian government will make money out of it. But 
you yeah, know, like I said and, before, and, the Australian government doesn't like the fact that people make money off their wildlife. It's weird. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, uh, as far as you, the, the breeders in Australia, I mean, you know, some of the stuff that you guys are doing is, is groundbreaking. And, you know, you're saying that there's limited reptile keepers in Australia, but if you could somehow yep. share some of that with the world, uh, you know, people would be lining up, <laughs> you know, taking oh, yeah. a number to try to get, <laughs> so, like, a locality carpet or locality, you know, that they knew that this yep. was exactly what it was. Uh, you know, people would pay exactly. top dollar for that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, st- I still get now, like, messages from all over the world. People sending me pictures going, what do you think this is? Where do you think it's from? You know, it's like it's a question. It's like, I notice, I notice you live in Denmark. I think it's come from Denmark. And they're like, oh, no, but seriously, what locality is it? Like, once it's gone out of the country, man, I don't know where it's come from. It looks, yeah, it might have sure. characteristics that are similar to certain areas, but you've got no idea. <laughs> right. See, that's and, the honest yeah, answer. Well, it is the honest answer. Most people think I'm yeah. Yeah, being a bit of a smart ass, but, you know, that's the honest answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll one thing I Yeah, I would be for one. One of those people lined up. Even if they turned around and said we're only going to do it for five years, like really, the money that oh. the Australian government would make off doing it legally is going to be sure. more beneficial than the money that the government pays to try and stop it happening illegally. Like really. They could say they're going to do it for a month, and we'll get everything we need in that month to last for another couple like years. Like, don't worry. The second they were going to say like, oh, and it starts now. Like, you'd run into your friends at the airport sending me packages. So, (laughs) yeah. What are you doing here, shipping stuff to Owen? Oh, me too. Yeah. So, exactly. (laughs) We get it all. Yeah. Oh hell yeah. It would be the smartest move ever, but, I mean, it's just, it, you know, the, the fact that people highlight their collections is great because everyone likes to be proud of their collections, but the thing is mm-hmm. it also mm-hmm. creates a, uh, a thirst, I guess, a, um, an, un, an unnatural thirst for the, the smugglers, you know. Here's a shopping list I need, you know, and then you get people ringing you saying, oh, I notice you got this. I need ten of these, and you're like, "What the friggin' hell? How can you afford ten of them?" Oh, don't worry, I'll pay cash. And you're like, oh, right. okay. "Red flags, red flags everywhere." Oh my god. Yeah, you just go. Hang on a minute. Most people struggle to buy one, and you want to buy ten straight off the bat. Uh, I feel a little bit awkward here. Jesus. Yeah, yeah. it's it's crazy. It does exist. I mean, no one's blind to it. It's just how you deal with it. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I guess before we run out of time, I want to make sure we hit on uh, Criticam. Um, tell us about Criticam. it, how it came about, and what uh, you know. What is what's the future? Oh well, you know, like, like I said before, I've, I've been doing mobile education for fifteen odd years, and then I ran into Mr. Barcheck. He came to Australia. I think it was in two thousand and ten. And, you know, I'd seen what he was doing and I just went, you know what? I'm running around seeing probably 100,000 people in a year. 
doing all the stuff that I was doing and I went, that's probably a better way to reach a larger number of people but also use your time a bit more efficiently through, through the media. And I guess it took a couple of years for me to, to work it all out and get it all sort of sorted. And then I think we started in 2014 or something like that. So it, it was mainly aimed at a way that people can have access to more information and learn more. And it's a, it's a, it's a great sort of opportunity, I guess, to get your message out there in a, a larger, larger way, really, all over the world rather than working within you know, an isolated population. Right. So that, that, that's sort of where it came from and where it's going to go. I don't know. I, you know. Do I have ambitions to be on TV and all the rest of it? Not really. Mm. I, I like doing right. what I do. I like, I like working with Colin, my, my camera guy. You know, that, that's, a, that's a, a kid I met when he was eight years old. He's now 32. And, you know, when oh, you wow. have these kids that come over, look at your collection, want to play with your snakes and do things like that. Well, some of them uh-huh. you can get rid of. Some of them you don't. You know, he's one of yeah. those I couldn't get rid of. So he's still, he's, he's still hanging around. I mean, I gave him a blue tongue, and his blue tongue was 21 years old. To me, that's dedication. You know, that's the, the that's what I like to see: people keeping these things because they love them. It's not, you know, an asset right. or a money-making thing, and it's because they love the animal. So him and I make a great team, and you know, he he's usually with me all the way wherever we travel. Um, we're actually heading to South Africa on the 18th. So wow. we're heading over there. So we're going to do some, hopefully we'll film some pretty cam stuff while we're over there. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's just about opening people's minds to see what's happening on the outside. And I mean, most of our shows really haven't been based around conservation or uh, apart from you know, animal keeping sort of the animal keeping aspects. And of course, we, we're in Australia, so we have limited sort of things that we can expose and talk about. Mm-hmm. But on the on the flip side, we've got some pretty cool stuff that everyone wants that no one gets to see. Yeah. So it's, I, I look at that now as it's our responsibility to make the time and effort to visit these guys' collections, see all these cool stuff. Um, there's a guy working with Thorny Devils, you know, um, we're, we're, we're aiming to go out and see his collection. And he works with a lot of different um, agamid species as well. So, you know, it, it's, it's almost like a duty. It's our job to get out there, show the case of these animals, hopefully highlight people's collections. And the only reason you get right. to see my ugly nugget really is because most people don't want to stand in front of the camera. Yeah, right. And I mean, we, we hide like behind people. radios, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I do have a face for radio, unfortunately, but um, it's, 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 it's my line. So. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's just it's just a way of reaching more people and hopefully getting the message out. And you know, is it is it supposed to be more than that? Not really. I, I just hope it's just a way that we can all, you know, appreciate the hobby, whether it be. Where, no matter where we live, you know, you could be in the Arab Emirates or you know, <laughs> anywhere, really, and appreciate, you know, there's a huge reptile-loving community everywhere, Japan, all through Asia, as well as all through the Arab com- countries as well. You know, it's, it's massive. 
Right. We all share the same. We all share the same thing, regardless of you know where we sleep or what we eat. We all share the same passion. We all love the animals. Right. So, I'm hoping that's that's where that goes. You know. Awesome. Very very nice. Yeah. So, Peter, <laughs> we mean, we close crazy shit. I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, but um, so we normally close out with a certain number of questions, and uh, the the questions are to get you to think a little bit more, and that first one is, if you could work with any species in the world without limitations of money or law, what would it be and why? Mm. It's a great question. (laughs) I mean... One of my other favourite things is small monitors. Oh. So you know, you know the the Borneo earless monitors. Definitely, I would like to work with some of that stuff. You know. Well, you the earless monitor. Okay. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's one of those weird see, ones. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a freak of nature. It looks looks as though it could be a little bit more aquatic. Um, yeah. Much like our Merton monitors. So yeah. I, I, I think those guys interest me a lot. Yeah, definitely. Looks like someone stretched out a Gila monster and spray painted it green. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Love to work with those mm. Because, I mean, it's a double-edged sword. Um, number one, look what's happening to their natural habitat. Yeah. Uh, you know, captivity might, might be the only way that these guys are going to be around long-term and captive breeding, not just all of a sudden, things popping up in captivity. Yeah. Just Unfortunately. Really, from, what I've, from what I've already seen, I, I think there'd just be some really interesting animals to work with. So. They would be cool. I would like to see them in person, um, kind of messing around with them. Those, those would be kind of cool to play with. So. I, I've seen, I, we've actually seen, um, there was a pair offered for sale in San Diego last, San Diego Reptile Show last year. I think that was about March or something like that. And um, I, went up, I went over to film them, and as he lifted the, the log to show me so I could film them, they were mating. Oh, shit. <laughs> so here they were in this two-foot fish tank, sitting out in the middle of the open in front of everyone, mating. No, and no, I just, if, I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean if I own those animals, yeah, I mean, if I own those animals, and I'm just putting them out for sale, and they were breeding as yep. we were at the show. Like I would quietly remove the stickers that say that they're for sale and put them in my pocket because yes. that means the animals are coming back home. But yeah, that's what I would have done. But I, I don't know if they sold them or not. But yeah, it was um, it's pretty awesome. We actually we actually got some footage of that. I'd, I'd have to dig that out somewhere and put that up on our YouTube channel. But um, that was just really amazing for me. That was pretty cool. That is cool. Yeah. It's one of those one of those species I've always wanted to see and then I got to see it and it was mating and it was like, Oh my god. You best day ever. So. <laughs> yeah. I could die right now. Best day ever. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So next one. If you could go field herping anywhere in the world, where would you want to go and what would you be hoping to find? Oh, well, come on, man. There's Madagascar. There's Borneo. 
Sheesh. I know we're, we're make making you pick. I know. <laughs> yeah, I, I think Madagascar and some of those um, the the tiny little chameleons. Okay. Those things would be pretty awesome to find. Yeah. Now that there's a bunch of yeah, different geckos and different stuff, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, geckos. That's it. Yeah, geckos. No, chameleons. <laughs> chameleons. chameleons and, um, if I was Borneo, it'll be the vipers. Definitely vipers. Jeez. Like yeah, the, the, the big ones. Yeah. Some of those um, the, uh, temple vipers and uh, Pope's vipers are pretty impressive looking animals. Yeah, I've got an extensive palette when it comes to reptiles. Nothing <laughs> off, the, off, the, off the limits. I'd like to play with a little bit of everything. So. Right. I mean, we remember when uh, when we first met you at the one Tinley Park show, it was like you said hi to us, and then you were checking out our carpet pythons, and then you saw our friend Matt Minatola and all his oh, yeah. Borneos and blood pythons, blood, and it was yeah. like, oh. you were like, your carbon pythons are, what are those? And you're gone. You know, it's like, all right, well, um, we think oh, Peter yeah. liked our stuff. We don't know. So. Oh, yeah. And yeah, no bloods and balls. Uh, I mean, ball pythons are nice. Um, there's a great color palette, but I really like the, the short tails or the bloods, yeah. They're, yeah. Um, they've always been a, a soft spot for me. And to to play with them without, you know, losing a bit of blood is always a bonus, too. <laughs> yeah, that I'm, is, I'm that happy is to share blood. That's fine. Yeah, I'm happy to shed some blood. That's fine, but um, yeah, it's always a little bit more enjoyable when you don't have to. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Uh, yeah. Uh, Peter, before you we uh, get running out of time or anything like that, um, if someone wanted yeah. to get in touch with you, how would they do that? If you want to throw out your email, website, social media, anything like that. I guess I guess the best part or place is probably just. Just uh, look up Criticam on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably the best one. We've got all the social media there. We've got Twitter, Instagram. Yeah, all the all the cool stuff, I guess. All the cool kids have these days. It's <laughs> so probably the best place yeah. to uh, send me a message and get in contact. I mean, websites are really dying these days compared to social media, and everyone's got a Facebook page, right? Right. right, Facebook's free. Yeah, yeah, that's so. right. Hell yeah, that much easier to work with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's probably the best place to find me, floating around in the in the universe. Very cool. Okay. Awesome. Cool. cool. Well, uh, we appreciate well. you taking the time and chatting with us, and uh, have a good trip to Africa, and uh, we'll talk again. Find find some cool awesome. stuff. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm onto it. I'm onto it. I'll be looking. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank you so much awesome. for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So do we. Okay, guys. Well, thank you very much, and I'll um, chat to you soon. Yeah. All right. We'll see you at Tinley, hopefully. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> see you soon. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks. All right. All right, Alan. Um get my computer to come back up so I can see where we're at. Oh, for the um, love of God, just do the closeout. It's the same closeout we always do. Why do you need a script? I know, but I, I, I don't need a script. I need to be able to end the show. <laughs> oh, you need to turn it, right. <laughs> <laughs> or we'll just be sitting here in silence until it ends. Yeah. Um, 
Okay. Hopefully, uh, I need a new computer. Um, That's my problem. That's this isn't my problem. I'm just gonna hang up. So I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This I hope like we a don't have another repeat, problem. like we did last week. Like last week, we had the problem where the episode didn't load. People just lost oh, their minds God. on Wednesday morning. You know, it's, <laughs> just, it, it, you know it's going to be a bad Wednesday when, like, I get to work. I haven't even had half of my coffee yet. And someone's like, I can't load this. I'm like, calm down. We will work on it. And then you're like, I'm in meetings. I'm like, calm down. I will stall until Eric gets done with his meeting. And it can be fixed. <laughs> So, yeah, yeah, it was one of those things where uh, obviously we can't control a lot of things with technical difficulties and stuff like that. So hopefully everything loads up appropriately or we're just going to ruin everybody's Wednesday morning commute like we do every once in a while. So, um, yeah, the worst is the worst is when the show doesn't actually go. Like if we don't uh, we've had it one or two times. We've actually had to cancel the show due to technical difficulties. And when we do that, I pretty much just imagine people setting their computers on fire. It, it, that's that's what ends up happening. So, yeah. Well, I and, know, like when you're looking forward to a to a specific show or or a guest or, you know, uh, and it doesn't happen, you know, somebody's somebody's paying. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, uh, I'm a, I'm gonna you know, bother I somebody. Know what the hell's going on. Yeah, it was weird because last week I was in this uh, this class, and I think yeah. I was in like some kind of uh, nuclear bunker uh, because <laughs> I didn't get any kind of uh, reception at all uh, on my phone. And um, somebody, I think Rob was trying to call me, and like I saw it, and I said, uh-oh, something must be wrong, you know, because it yeah. was early in the morning, and, you know. I kind of I tried to look at for myself, and then I saw it wasn't there. Yeah, I I, I wasn't and being trying very to helpful. talk to Blog Talk. It was like, well, man, yeah, yeah. I have to do this when I get home. But it did work you out. And that was a good episode. So if you missed, if you didn't, it was. <laughs> it's the easiest episode that Owen and I ever had to do. So yeah, we, we didn't. I mean, hello. I thought Dick. That was it. Done. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Goodbye. Welcome to Really Place on Radio. And then it was all right. Thanks for listening. Bye. Like that was it. <laughs> yeah, uh, which is awesome. I, I yeah, whatever. Yeah, Nick Mutton of the uh, Underworld. You thought I was lying? I, no, uh, I wasn't. I just, I think, I think, unfortunately, we have to start calling you know Nick the Harlan of the Carpet World because I think Harlan beat him. But yeah, yeah, that might be yeah. true. Yeah. But uh, so next week. We have uh, Terry coming on, and we're going to be talking about rhino rats and cave dwelling nice. rats, and nice. We'll squeeze some rough say scale it. talk in there. There sure. it is. Uh, <laughs> say it. I know it's there. So. Yeah, that's like your three favorite right now. You'll, you'll, I know. It's a great episode. So. <laughs> yeah. So that that should be cool, and uh, we have in the works not settled on a date, at least I don't think it's settled on a date, but the uh, the host of TTP Keeper Radio is going to come Both of them. hang out with yeah. us. Both yeah. of them. Yeah. So, that should be we a fun throw those guys a, we got to throw those guys a bone every once in a while, just because I mean, they can come play with the big boys. 
I say that so I get text messages uh, tomorrow while I'm at work and I'm not bored. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, right. Come and play with the big boys. I know uh, you can come play with us. Yeah, that'll be fun later. Anyway, All right. uh, yeah. All right, so Morelli Python Radio. Uh, you can uh, check out the show at uh, Blog Talk slash Python Radio dot com. Um, also. You can subscribe on iTunes or whatever your podcast app of choice is. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, if you want to email us, info at moreliapythonradio.com. Um, and I guess if, you know, you, Facebook, you can always message either myself or Owen on Facebook. <laughs> I find that it's easier that you, that you uh, message me directly. Uh, because sometimes on the page you don't really see the messages. <laughs> right, right. Or so, it gets kind of swept up. And, yeah, you know. it kind of gets lost in the shuffle. But uh, and, yeah, and if you, if you message me, I mean, if you message me directly, I'll just tell you to message Eric directly. So it's better just to cut <laughs> out the middleman and go straight to him. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Check out. Um, <laughs> Our booster. Uh, I think you talked about it yes. at the beginning of the show when you were talking about it. I had a lot of stuff to talk so. about at the beginning of the show. It was, it was, yeah. There was nothing else to, go back to do. <laughs> no, why? It was stupid. But anyway, uh, um, just rambling. Um, <laughs> that's good. Uh, and let's see what else. What else do we have coming up? I'm can't. I'm I'm drawing a blank. If there's anything. Aside from the booster. No, right? No, I mean, we we didn't decide the calendar thing because I know we were talking about doing it earlier, but we're still far out from that, right? Yeah, that's probably going to be maybe yeah. the next month we'll start talking about that. So probably. be paying attention. It's going to be earlier. That way, yeah. we, we, I'm not going to make any promises, <laughs> but we hope to have it for soon. Like, <laughs> we fail miserably every we year never because do. we're always late. <laughs> Nobody gets going calendars. <laughs> yeah, it never goes. I I'm got mine in like man. March. So <laughs> yeah, you're different now. <laughs> oh yeah, no one cares about me. <laughs> well, if you want it, you know where I live. Just come and get it. You could put it in the freaking mail. My bitch isn't. No, I'm not FedEx. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. This is clearly an argument we're going to have off air. So, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, not no for the kids. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, as far as myself, ebmorelli.com. You can check out my website, my Facebook page, Instagram, Twitter, you know, all that stuff. Um, yeah, and if you want to get in touch with me that way, eric at ebmorelli.com. Um I think uh, most of my offspring from this year, they're on their, uh, some of them are on their third feeding, some of them are on their second feeding, so there'll be uh, be stuff coming up available uh, real soon, so can't hoard them all (laughs) as much as I want to. No, Uh, you can't. Yeah, so uh, that's all I got. Take us out. Cool. Cool. Uh, you can go to Rogue Dash Reptiles for me. 
uh, com. Uh, we're going to be updating it soon with babies that are for sale, probably in the next month or so. Um, if you want or are interested in any of the animals that we have currently for sale, which would be red tiger jags, red coastals, caramels, super caramel jags, and super caramels, let us know. We'll try to get you some pictures of any animals that you might be interested in. Until then, uh, the ads will be up probably, like I said, in the next month or two after everybody has, I think, another shed and another couple feedings. Um, we're still waiting on a high con to red jag clutch that will be hatching soon. Other than that, that's all I got. We have the next show that we have scheduled is August Hamburg Reptile Show. So we'll hope to see everybody there. You can also go onto Facebook, look up Rogue Reptiles, give us a like over there. Any new classified ads will be listed on the Facebook page a week before they're put out on the internet so you get first dibs. That's all I have. That's all we have for tonight. Um, once again, thank you, everybody, who wished me a happy birthday today. Um, and couldn't imagine anything better to do on my birthday than spend it with you guys. So what I'll say is good night, everybody, and we'll catch everybody next time for some more Morelia Python Radio. Good night. <laughs>